Wow. Oh, hey there. My name's Ross, and I'm a bit of a nerd for all things nature. So a while ago, I started a passion project called well, nerdy about nature. It began as social media videos sharing cool fun facts and tidbits of wisdom about the natural world and has since evolved in this podcast that you're tuning into here. This project serves as a means to inspire, educate, and engage folks with the outdoor world so that we can all become better stewards of it and so that we can all work together to create a more inclusive, diverse, equitable, and just future for each and every one of us in this world that we all share. Because nature, it's pretty dang neat, you know? I think we should keep it that way. So come on, let's go get nerdy about nature. Come and take a nature walk with me, we're gonna check out some really cool trees, we're gonna hang around and talk about all those things in nature that we can't live without, let's go get nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, baby, nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, come on, let's get nerdy about nature. Ah, welcome fellow nerds to the Nerdy About Nature podcast, and oof, have I got a heater of an episode for you today. Today's guest is Mark Worthing. He's the Coastal Projects Lead at Sierra Club BC. Now, I've met Mark kind of online throughout the pandemic. I've seen him speak a few times online, um, saw him speak at an event in Whistler, and I've always wanted to have him on because he's just, uh, you know, an incredibly well-spoken, thoughtful, and inspirational dude doing some really, really, really important work, uh, not only for our forests and related ecosystems, but for the people who live and reside on these lands, especially the indigenous nations on whose land all of us here in so-called Canada and the United States are living on. So in this chat, we cover quite a bit, you know, from the technical elements of government and industry ties that create forestry policy together to the hypocritical and colonial actions of conservation groups and dealing with land and ownership in the past to different instances of indigenous nations standing up against these colonial powers to assert their sovereignty to more deep and philosophical discussions around optimism and what keeps him moving forward in what can often be really heavy and heartbreaking work. Now, At the very beginning of this podcast series, in the introduction episode that you may or may not have listened to, I stated outright that the purpose of this podcast was to have more in-depth and even uncomfortable conversations with folks with the sole goal of being able to learn, grow, and find some sort of comfort in that discomfort to see things in a new way. And I think that this idea is a really important one to reiterate before we dive into this conversation, because even though Mark and I are laughing and joking quite a bit throughout it, the subjects we're talking about are really serious with huge implications on human rights and our collective future. And as settlers on these stolen lands, some of this can come across as pretty blunt and matter of fact. You know, some of these ideas may be really difficult for some of you to hear. And I'd just like to reiterate that that is okay. You know, that's where the growth happens. So if something does make you uncomfortable, please don't skip ahead or switch it off. You know, bear with me here and sit through this because these are incredibly important issues that will only ever be solved through active, engaged participation and working through these uncomfortable scenarios together so that we can all work together to create a better world for us all. So with all that being said, let's drop into this conversation here, learn a few things and have some fun. Here we go. Yeah. Oh, uh, can I drop F-bombs in this interview? Or Totally. Actually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, that's liberating. Okay. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on board here. I've <laughs> um, been bantering a little bit. Now, would you like to officially start this by just introducing yourself and telling me what you do here sure um i know tall order who are you it's not that tall my name is my name is mark worthing i i have a mixed uh 
Scottish and English ancestry. Um, and I was born in Coast Salish territories and in so-called Vancouver. And right now I'm coming in from Cowitzan territories in the Cowichan Valley. And I spend a lot of my time professionally hugging trees as the coastal projects lead at Sierra Club BC. Sounds like a pretty fun gig, hugging trees. It's bittersweet, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a privilege to do the work. It has its ups and downs. Mm-hmm. How did you get into this kind of work? Oh, how long have you been with Sierra Club? You went for hard questions right away. I feel uh, like these are pretty basic introduction yeah, questions. Yeah, right. No, yeah. you're right. Um, I've been at Sierra Club for. Uh, almost eight years um i started out doing work in the southern rockies with them i came from the climate justice movement prior to that and kind of burnt out really hard on doing uh aerial blockades with greenpeace and direct actions in the tar sands and doing climate justice work in in ottawa and different places and kind of wanted to connect with land bases essentially i wanted to do um resistance work and like creative projects with communities and and places because that kind of felt a little more grounded and like i wouldn't i wouldn't burn out as quickly on that because you could actually be working with rivers and working with forests and ecosystems and animals and stuff and so i started with sierra club um in the flathead uh the southeasternmost kind of uh, valley, beautiful, gorgeous valley in Tanaha territory, um, flows down into Montana in the transboundary area. So working with colleagues in Montana and Alberta and BC in that in that zone, kind of um, hoping to have park expansion work early and then sort of shifting it more towards indigenous-led conservation projects. And then eventually I realized I'm here on the coast, you know, and I look around me right now and I see a lot of really awful uh, forestry practices right here where I'm from. So I kind of like reoriented to, uh, where I am and that's, that's like why I'm doing the work, where I'm doing it, where I have relationships. Um, yeah, here on the coast. What got you into like forests in the beginning? Like as a kid, like what was it about it that drew you to the, to forests? It's easy coming from Vancouver because there's like, the access is so great to forests in general. I feel like that's kind of like what got me into it in Washington. It's like, you don't realize how privileged it is to even like have forests kind of mm. not necessarily in your backyard, but be able to just like, you know, drive and go out. Um, and it's only been like, as you get older, you like realize like all those forests that I thought were such magical places are just these kind of desolate second growth stands that like, <laughs> I, you know, as a kid, you don't realize that, but it's still, it's enough to get you into it. Mm-hmm. Is it kind of like that in Vancouver? My grandmother painted China, uh, and she painted uh, wildlife on China. Hmm. And I remember being a little kid and watching my grandmother go back and forth between the Audubon like bird uh, ID books to make sure that she got like the the red of a Western tanager just right, and something about her attention to detail uh clicked with me and i think it also kind of like triggered it gave me permission to sort of fall in love with the natural world and so i i think probably just like that and my you know my family raised me in the woods uh traveling all over the okanagan and and manning park and you know wild wild spaces in 
in the lower mainland and, and on the coast a, a lot. I, I spent a lot of time on the beach. Um, but fundamentally, I think it was actually my grandmother who kind of triggered my brain to be mindful of like natural spaces and pay attention to detail in the world. And then inevitably, when you are given permission to fall in love with the natural world around you, quite quickly you realize that what you've fallen in love with is in jeopardy. And so mm. the rest is kind of history at that point, I think. Yeah, kind of falling in love with the beauty of it. Yeah. You said twice in that, given permission to fall in love with the outdoor world. Mm. Do you feel like there's something like inherent within our society that like where that's like not something that's easily granted or that like it's not a thing that people just no. do? No, no. We're groomed to make sure that there's a large dissonance between the human world and the natural world. And so it takes a lot of unlearning to like uh, heal that that binary that's been manufactured by capitalism and patriarchy and colonialism and you know all those fun isms um that we work on um, fun not so, so yeah. fun uh, yeah and i don't know why i don't know why i said permission because maybe you don't need permission maybe it's more like a rediscovery or but no i i agree with you like i just when you were saying that i took note of it too because i felt kind of the same thing like growing up in kind of like rural suburbia just like america you know you're like you do sports on the weekend, you join mm. the baseball team, you go see a movie, you go to the mall. That's like where people hang out and spend their time. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have come from a family that like really engaged with the outdoors and got us out as kids. And I remember hating it when I was younger because it took me away <laughs> from like my yeah. friends and like my life at school and everything I knew. But like that was a rare thing that I think was kind of like I was the odd man out. For like being the kid who would like go camping on the weekends and go skiing and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which is crazy to think about now in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, f- I feel like family context is huge, privilege is huge, how you were mm-hmm. brought up is huge, environmental racism and like in which neighborhoods and which like socioeconomic status you grow up in gives you certain levels of access to natural spaces or green spaces even. So a lot of those pieces kind of like set the set the board or set the kind of motions in place in order to actually be given permission to uh, cultivate those types of relationships or even see into into those worlds a little bit more as youth or young person and as adults too yeah yeah do you think that disconnection is something that um well obviously it's a big issue that we're facing today but do you think that's something that like is easily rectified within our society <clears throat> not not easily no, I don't think easily. In fact, I think reconnecting with natural spaces and ancestral ties, even if you're not from here, um, is uh, is dangerous. I think that's a dangerous act to, <laughs> to actually connect with, with wild spaces. Yeah. You're not supposed to do that. It's radical. Right? And you're supposed to keep that compartmentalized. Those are resources, right? We exploit those in order to get the well-being and the lifestyle that we have here. You're supposed to have a kind of abusive relationship with 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 wilderness or with indigenous territories or landscapes or rivers or mountains or something and that's that's proper right and if you um if you do allow yourself or seek or cultivate a certain type of love with the landscape um that's yeah that's it that's a kind of a dangerous precedent to set and that is that is frowned upon by our culture in in many respects it's just so interesting because I feel like we live in, in such a world, especially today, as we kind of become more dependent on technology for communications and connections and staying in contact and the way that we run our daily lives. Like, I couldn't have gotten here today without Google Maps directing me and telling me where mm-hmm. to go. Um, 
that it just is one of those things where it, I feel like it's rare to meet people in my generation who have had this type of upbringing, and I just wonder where it's going. You mm. know, mm-hmm. kind of worried, I guess. Kind of. I'm pretty worried. I'm pretty worried. I <laughs> finished a whole bottle of scotch on the IPCC report that came out lately, and I'm, I haven't come back from that. It's it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that IPCC report, the most recent one, you're talking about the one that came out three weeks ago, four weeks ago? Uh, oh, God, no. Oh, no, I mean the one before that. <laughs> there was one. Yeah, that one was really pre-COP 26. Oh, that one. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm still... <laughs> reeling yeah well the one the i found the the most recent one um pretty interesting because one of the issues that they talk about in that that they kind of hadn't really addressed in previous ones was the need for systemic change where it needed to come from governments it needed to be yeah we needed to address all these issues of like segregation and racial or um, environmental racism and stuff as you called it like yeah there are all these things that separate us quote unquote humans and our society from the natural world. But like, we really need to break down these walls. It's like, we have the technology, mm-hmm. it's feasible. It's e- it economically makes sense. We have everything we need to like make this transition. Mm-hmm. We just have resistance from the systems in which we live. Mm-hmm. It's a dangerous place to be in given yeah. this situation. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But this is the work. This is where we find ourselves. Right. Um, so what kind mm-hmm. of work exactly do you do then with Sierra club? Or in general, beyond that? Mm, I often think about the work that I do at Sierra Club as a bit of a Swiss army knife. Um, where I try to work on myself. It's like a place where I do a lot of like kind of self-reflection and, and deconstruct the ways in which sort of a hmm. um, white supremacy and... Um, normative urban environmentalism has um kind of recreated uh problematic dynamics in trying to like find sustainable ways of living on planet earth and 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 with each other um uh in good ways especially here on 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 stolen lands it's a whole another layer um in this in this part of the world but so a lot of it is like self-work and working within the environmental movement to take responsibility for the misgivings that exist there um Hmm. i have no idea if i'm doing a good or bad job at that maybe i'm perpetuating new problems that were unforeseen to me as it were for the the giants that i stand on their shoulders before um but that is part of the work um and then also i do a lot of work um with communities up and down the coast and so i try to become available and visible and um present in in a lot of spots um on the coast so i work in in the landscapes often called the great bear rainforest i work in kwakwakiwak communities i work in nichonath communities i work in coast salish communities um and try to sort of listen to um, the types of conversations that are happening either at a grassroots level, at a hereditary governance level, at a band council administration level, municipal communities in the forest sector, in the private sector. I pay a lot of attention to what what kind of emergent thinking is there um, and then be responsive to that. And so if I'm hearing from a community in Powell River or, or the Cathet region um, in Tlaman and Clouse territory, then, you know, and they're saying, ah, geez, you know, I really wish, I really wish we could, uh, 
be going out and and um, figuring out age classifications and of trees in, of trees you know because we don't think that the age class is right and so anytime we talk to western forest products they just tell us we're wrong but we think we're right and i'm like okay great so you need an increment borer and you need um, maybe a, a forester or something and you know i can try to network and find you somebody that can do that work with you and so they go out to um, some of the valleys or they'll go up into the Eldred or something in the last remaining tracks of old growth there and they'll age classify those forests and they go back and be like, we were right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just basically the tactics and strategies that are born from community. I try to like hear that and then uh, work with the, with the tools that they're trying to build their capacity out with and vocalize their own solutions that are, that are born from community. And I do the same thing with a lot of, a lot of indigenous uh, communities as well. Um, Cause they already know, they know what needs to happen. They, they're working on the, on, on the healing work and the, the building back uh, stronger senses of resistance to resource extraction and stuff in their territories. Um, so it's just really a matter of, of helping and, and, and being helpful in those contexts. Yeah. Trying to facilitate change where you can and like empower people to. Yeah. Yeah. Empower, and, empower. And that, naturally too, like the provincial government is like by and large the number one barrier to progress. Almost always. Yeah. Even beyond some of the corporate sector, like even the worst logging companies, I would say aren't as big of a barrier as the policy level problems that the province has created for itself. Well, that's just what I was going to say. It's like you're in a way working with and facilitating this ability for these people to speak out against like the kind of the structures that they live in are and are able to speak. Like mm. there's a lot that like, you know, we're in a quote unquote free country, but there's a lot that's like dictated by how we're able to even exercise our voice and like go through the kind of labyrinth of like expressing ourselves to make our values heard Mm. and so you're in a way just kind of like giving the tools to those smaller communities so that they can do that yeah um not quite i i don't have the tools to give it's not my power sure but but i mean like you're you're helping and and brainstorming finding ways you're yeah problem solving i'm problem solving and you know if one community is like dang we like worked we wanted we want to be the scissors in this scenario then i get the swiss army knife and i'm like okay i'll find you the grant funding to do that part of the swiss army knife maneuver and that great so scissors cool that's the tactic or strategy they want to do i'm like cool we'll work that out you know i'm privileged to be paid to like problem solve this and like maybe those folks in community have full-time jobs or they like have a family they're like trying to upkeep or whatever and so i'm like i got this i'll i'll work on it and report back to you and then somewhere else we'll want the the file on the swiss army knife right because <laughs> yeah. that's more relevant for what they're doing and i'm like great i'll work on a file we'll, we'll get that going um but yeah no i think by and large the solutions grow in the communities um it's just a matter of trying to like push back against the government and corporate barriers that exist there where have you been doing the most work re- recently? Uh, I spend a lot of time uh, in Kwakwakiwak territory. Um, For those listening, if you were to describe that, where would that be? I would describe that as roughly uh, R- Rivers Inlet or Wicano, uh territory on the central coast of BC. Um, kind of down all through the Broughton Archipelago, um, Guasla, Nakwakdao territory, Muskamaudzao, Danik, Kinkum Inlet, Night Inlet, um, Numgis territory, Quatsino around the north end of Vancouver Island, um, down through Lake Waltak and Maamtagila and um, many, many nations, 18, I think, um, or so. 18 nations in, in the, Kwakwakwa. In the unified Kwakwakwa, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
And you were just living in Port Hardy, just actually. Don't moved. quote me on the eighteen. I'm not sure if it's eighteen. That might change. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, because things are always changing and evolving. That eighteen, that's like a, in a way, kind of a Western way of like classifying and saying. These, sure. Yeah. Like. Yeah. By and large. Yeah. The. the I mean uh, the, the Montagila, Montagila, like that's a perfect example of that, right? right? Yeah. Cause, that was a nation that previously wasn't even recognized one and it still isn't oh it's still not still I thought not recognized it's still kind of going through the courts yeah wow yeah yeah for a little background on that would you like to kind of expand on that situation sure you know uh, more about it than i do sure yeah um <clears throat> i don't know the dates exactly but um as i understand um the Ma'amtagila are one of the tribes of, of, of the Kwakwakiwak or nations, tribes, however um, you think about it. They're ranked in the potlatch speaking order in the big house and the governance house of, of the Kwakwakiwak. Um, <clears throat> and uh, sort of early days, Ma'ata Gila, uh, the ancestor kind of landed in, in a place in, in Kwakwakiwak territory and in deep time and then eventually sort of uh, was associated with the Quagulf, um out near Port Hardy area, and then in kind of like old old time, um, eventually made their way further down Johnstone Strait into the territories that they claim now of um, kind of loosely the Sitka uh, Valley on Vancouver Island, kind of not quite to sayward, more like the Eve Adam drainage and then in the Great Bear Rainforest side uh, the areas of Call Inlet um, and Port Neville, Port Harvey places like that mm. <clears throat> um, and uh, but through the course of, of colonization of course um, a lot of the RCMP and the Indian agents and, and, and colonization were forcing folks to get uh, pulled out of their territories either by way of residential schools or through economic duress and uh, geo geopolitics um, and so they ended up kind of amalgamating or moving a little bit closer to alert bay um, at kalaguis with the uh, tlawitsis it's another neighboring nation or tribe um, and then um the Indian agent essentially kind of did a census and lumped them together and made them one, right? They, they amalgamated them because they right. happened to be living together. <laughs> by force. Uh, par partly by force, partly by choice. Um, but, but like through the circumstances of colonization, yeah. they ended up living together yeah. and then counted as one. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they had sort of a two-chief system going there. Mm -hmm. um, and then through a further course of of colonization um eventually the Ma'amtagila um uh, chief or side of the the families sort of withdrew from the Inak band council sort of structure and slowly and slowly became more of a Tlawitsis um run band council and then um in the 80s i believe late 80s um so a uh, a, a band council resolution was struck by um, one of the folks in, in the Tlawitsis who was in the band council leadership and basically just deleted the name Ma'amtagila from, from the registered tribe and thereby kind of nullifying the existence of Ma'amtagila and also sort of swallowing the territory that was their side of that agreement. Um, and it all became kind of Tlawitsis. Hmm. Um, and... Uh, 
yeah, you know, I'll, I'll refrain from making any major judgment calls about about the Tlaoitzis Band Council right now, um, out of respect for the families. But by and large, it, it meant for Ma'amtagila families and the Madalpi families that they were not recognized by the crown. At that point, it kind of got mm-hmm. hived off. And the Tlaoitzis are the Tlaoitzis. They're their own thing. Um, and their families are really tight. Um, but, um, but it meant that on paper, the Montagela didn't exist anymore. Hmm. Um, and so now a lot of their gigame are stepping back up and they're like, we're right here. <laughs> I swear I exist, you know, here yeah. I am. And they, they potlatch, their chiefs are feasting and they're on the land and they're asserting their sovereignty. They're reoccupying the territory. Um, and they're doing amazing work around forests. They're doing yeah. really cool stuff around forests. One of my mentors, he, my my adopted uncle brother boss, I call him, Gigyame um, uh, is, um is doing really neat neat work um, in the territory. It's it's a real it's a real honor to work with him and think about old Kwakwakiwak relationships with with Atli or the Atlagima, like a, the forest essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Does that answer? Does that? Does that... <clears throat> yeah. I just I find that situation to be pretty fascinating. Just from yeah. what I've they're in court. They're <clears throat> talked in court to right now with Randy about. Yeah. Yeah. Check out check out their website momptagela.com. All the stories there. Um, better than I know it. Um, and and they're looking for support. They're they're seeking recognition from the crown, from the federal yeah. government, and from the provincial government, and they want their land back. <laughs> right. Because it's more than just like a nation trying to assert and gain their sovereignty. It's like the frame for the right to even exist and be recognized in the first place. By the, uh, in the eyes of the in crown. In the eyes of the crown. Yeah. 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 Wild. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like real nation building work. Really? And it's yeah. really beautiful. Yeah. And so you lived up in Port Hardy for a couple of years doing mm-hmm. work up there. Yeah. 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 What, what was it like living up in Port Hardy doing this type of work in that traditionally kind of blue collar town? Mm. It was great. Um, yeah, it was great. Uh, it was awful. Um, it was great. <laughs> it was fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. It was great. It was COVID is what it was. So yeah. there's nothing to compare it to, right? Um, Did you move up there during COVID or? I moved in. Or before? Before. Or, or no, right at the beginning. It was the middle of the first lockdown. Oh, and you moved up there. Yeah, I forget what month was that. Tough time to move anywhere. Oh, God. It's not like you're going over for tea with no. people every day. No. No. But um, I will say that I was um, very welcomed by by a lot of the Bakwam community, like the First Nations community. There's big, there's three, well, four big communities. There's the Dzalgwadi, Gwasla, Nakwakdal community, just past Port Hardy on the north side of town. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Kwagyulf community at Tsakis or Fort Rupert, um, which is where I was living. Um, and then there's the Quatsino over near Coal Harbor as well. And then there's the town of Port Hardy. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and then Alert Bay, Port McNeil, Sloyantula, hop, skip, and a jump down the right. way. Um, and so I had the most like fun and like joy and, and, and relationships built with, with, um, yeah, some, some of the Quaggild leadership and, you know, Numgis friends and Quaggild folks over in Alert Bay. And I got friends over in Malcolm Island, Sloyantula and stuff. Um, and and it's a beautiful place to to launch from right you're people think about it like vancouver island but i mean it is vancouver island but it's also the center of the central coast it's kind of like the launching point to bella bella to bella coola to rivers inlet that's base camp in many respects is the last highway point and ferry point Mm -hmm. to that part of the coast next to next 
next highway access you're looking at is Bella Coola, and then it's Fort or uh, Prince Rupert, way up, up there, north, yeah. way up north. Yeah. So for a, even like as a port town, as a fishing town, like it's a huge fishing town mm-hmm. for where a lot of operations on the central coast base from. And then same thing, looking to the West Coast, everything on the Northwest Coast, you access from right there. If you're going to the Brooks Peninsula, mm-hmm. you're probably going through Port Alice. If you're going to Raft Cove or San Joe Bay or whatever, you're going out of Port Hardy. Mm-hmm. And then the whole of the Broughton Archipelago is all right there too. You're going out of Port McNeil into into the into the Broughton or down Johnstone Strait. So in many respects, it's the center of the world. Or it's the center of my world. Yeah. Um, so I loved it. Um, in, in that regard, it was COVID. It's also like, you know, it's a fish farm community. Um, and it's a, it's a logging community. And at one point in time, when you landed in the airport in Port Hardy, there was a big old sign that said, this is a Greenpeace free zone. And for somebody that's spent a lot of years working with Greenpeace, (laughs) that's a bit of a tough bullet to bite. I think, I think, there's even a resolution in, in council that says Port Hardy's a Greenpeace free zone somewhere. I've always wanted to go and really? find that. Yeah. I've never, that's maybe a rumor, but I, I, I think it's true. <laughs> I think it's true. Yeah. The ethic is true anyways. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they recently, wasn't there the Bouton group, they were able to remove a couple of fish farms just recently. Yeah. More than a couple. Yeah, it was like it wasn't. It was like a dozen, I think, eleven or twelve. Um, I'm not sure the, the entire the, the numbers. I mean, it was Zao Dana Namgis Mamalukha and one other nation, I think. Um, and that would have been about ten, about ten. Yeah. Um, or just shy of ten, maybe nine, eight. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of tough because in some other places they just kind of shuffled the deck a bit and put two more over here and two more over Moved there. Them down to the clay plot. Yeah. Yeah. So like a path was kind of cleared for many of the wild salmon runs, and certainly in the folks that I talk to that do sea lice sampling and stuff, they're like, the fish are cleaner. They are one hundred percent cleaner. The ones going out, the ones coming in. Yeah. Um. And you know, now the the truth will really be in the pudding because like those runs have now, and it's been the three year runs, the four year runs, the five year runs, they're actually like having full cycle returns now. So now we get to be like, I told you so, you know, we yeah. told you so. Um, so it's kind of an exciting couple of years right now for that pocket of like the, the sm- those smaller runs, a lot of the pink runs in the Broughton, um, the coho, the ch- I mean, just all of them. Um, but yeah, a lot of that is like done by, by amazing work at, from folks at the Salmon Coast Field Station mm-hmm. and all of the folks that occupied the fish farms a number of years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Like my colleague, Clalitlas, that I work with at Sierra Club and like, you know, Quaquabalas, Ernest Alfred, like, and so many other like amazing indigenous leaders were just like this. You can no, swear. Like, fuck this, right? <laughs> they, they, they were like, we're going to these fish farms and we're not leaving until they're gone. And that's what gave birth to the Broughton Roundtable conversations with the province. Um, and that's what got rid of it. Like, don't listen to anybody that says that some other thing was the reason why those fish farms are being removed. The First Nations of those communities that leveled up and occupied those fish farms is totally the reason. Yeah. That's what happened. Which is a pretty inspiring thing to see these days. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's it like working in the, like regards to forest, like doing the type of work that you do in an area where there is still so much logging presence? Cause you were like right down the street from Western forest products mills. And mm-hmm. 
I mean, we are right now, right? There's one in Cow Bay. Right, yeah. I mean, I guess they're all over. But what was it like living in that community and knowing that you were in like a Greenpeace free zone, <laughs> trying to do that type of work? Were there any altercations or anything? Like, uh, did you ever catch some negative vibes at the local pub? I've been known to catch a negative vibe here and there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty icy. It was super icy. Yeah. But never never anyone that knew me or any, never anyone that talked to me. Put it that way. Nobody that had the balls to actually be like, let's have a conversation. Um I shouldn't say balls. Nobody, nobody that had the the gametes to to actually listen. Yeah, it, really, it's just like the the macho kind of toxic masculinity thrust that is very deep in the force sector. Like that, that that in itself is a huge problem. There's a lot of like remarkable women that work in in forestry, and I think they're up against a steep grind. Like it must not be a fun work environment most of the time. Um, and yeah, there, there were some altercations, but I, I don't know. I don't really like to tell those stories because by and large, there's beautiful people that work in forestry and I got nothing but love for them. Fair, um, yeah. and so I don't, I don't lean that hard into that side of it. Anytime you're talking about high octane, like political content where people's livelihoods are on the line, like emotions run pretty hot, right. um, as they should, you know, and also like ecosystems are hemorrhaging. We're in a biodiversity crisis, like those emotions are pretty hot too on my part. Um, and I feel like uh, a lot of the communities there, the, the first nations communities have seen millions and millions and millions of dollars leave their territory. And they look around and they're like, why are we still in poverty? Like that's some bullshit. You know, you guys owe us tons of money. You've literally been stealing wealth from our territory for generations and generations. And so there's a lot of feelings there too. Um, even amongst indigenous folks that work in the forest sector, they're like, these are actually our forests to cultivate a forest sector with, you know, they're not like shareholders for Western on traded mm -hmm. on the TMX, you know what I mean? People in Toronto that have no idea how to tell the difference between a yellow cedar and a red, like they have more say over Kwakwakiwak forest than Kwakwakiwak people do. And that's crazy. And I think that is really where there's like more tension in small town communities is around those kind of racist and colonial differences. So the one piece around like challenging dynamics that, that I'll speak to in my experience in living in Port Hardy is that I definitely felt like a little bit of a traitor or I was treated like a trailer as like a white man. Oh really? Yeah. Like I was like playing for the wrong team kind of thing. Hmm. And that was an interesting one for me. I didn't really see that coming. Yeah. Um, I kind of saw some of the other stuff coming. Hey Velvet. Hi. <laughs> hey, puppy. Um, yeah, and it took me a while to wrap my head around, too. Um, like just a the, traitor. Yeah, the level of, of negativity that was associated with it was, was more than just like, I disagree with your old growth perspectives. You know, it was like something more than that. And I think it was because, especially in a lot of like rural areas, they're very segregated. I mean, urban areas, too. But like, there's the white communities, and then there's like the indigenous communities, and they're mixed and you know on good terms like in, in in many regards but also like state sanctioned segregation is real 
mm-hmm. that shit is real. Like we are not meant the reserve system was set up and like you guys go there and the white people go over here and we build the economy and we do the resource extraction. And like, yeah, maybe we'll throw you some, some trade beads and some impact benefit sharing agreements or something too off the side. But like, by and large, this is our economy. This is our country. And like, you get to participate in it. And if we allow on our terms and those tables are turning quite a bit right now, and I would say, especially working class white communities are having a really hard time wrapping their head around that. Cause like we, they, we feel like we earned it, right? Like we worked hard, we built, you know, BC was built on forestry, you know, like and fishing and mining and, and that's a very real, very specific type of pride that a lot of small town resource extraction economies have. And it's very problematic. And I felt the blunt end of that. Well, I mean, in some sense, like the the nation of Canada, like when you look at Canadian culture, it's all kind of like founded in these towns that were set up. Like people didn't move here to move here to find like a good place to live. It was like basically all these towns were established for resource extraction, beginning with fur trade, going into logging, eventually mining, oil, gas, natural gas. And it's like it's the primary goal was exports. It was like good port towns where you could ship things overseas back to the UK back to or to whoever the next highest bidder was on this kind of global market like there like Canadian culture is kind of like built on this framework of like taking things from land that isn't yours and put giving it or selling it to a, another part of the world to make a buck in this kind of capitalist scenario that we've created um, and it doesn't lo- it doesn't leave a lot of room for like that model doesn't leave a lot of room for doing it any other way. So you kind of have to rethink the whole framework of Mm. it, especially when you're dealing with like issues of like reconciliation and undrip and getting people from these nations involved in more ways other than just like kind of a forced consent perspective, you know, Mm. Mm -hmm. actually giving them like control and power and like ability to make decisions on their land without feeling like, yeah, they're forced into it. I mean, that's the function of a colony. Right. That's why... That's why Fort Nanaimo is what it is. That's why Fort Rupert is what it is. Fort Vancouver, Fort Victoria, they're colonies, right? They're, that's exactly what it is. That's colonization. That's, that's the, there's nothing hidden, right? Like it's almost on the nose. You're like, right, <laughs> right. We literally made it that way. Like we manufactured that. Even like in Port Hardy, that's Fort Rupert, first place of European contact on the inside passage. It's Fort Rupert for a coal mine. They were like, oh, there's coal there great and so they went and started trying to actually negotiate terms with the quagules and that's what the pre-confederate douglas treaties are it's douglas treaties down in victoria laquangans and chathan speaking folks and then the only other douglas treaty the only other treaty west of like northeastern bc is the douglas treaty and that was also signed in fort rupert and there was the suquash coal mine and that's what the ships ran on right um, James Douglas rolled in. I was drinking my morning coffee and look out at the first anchorage of James Douglas right there in, in Tyagul in front of, front of Fort Rupert um, was for coal. The very first pre-Confederate strike action of like labor action was Quagulth miners basically going on strike and refu- not, refraining from giving their labor to the coal mine because English and Scottish miners were making more money than they were. And they were like, that's bullshit. Even kids know that's not fair. You know, that's not fair. I'm working just as hard as you pay up, you know? And so like the first time in my knowledge that like strike action actually happened in so-called Canada or at least Western, you know, Canada, um, was from the Quagulth 
It was indigenous folks that started striking first before Canada even existed. That's right? fascinating. I had so no fascinating. idea. Yeah, Suquash coal mine. You can hike through there. You see the bones of the old kind of metal mining equipment in the forest still there. And there's still CMTs and, you know, old old forest right there, which is like an interesting kind of contradiction in that, that little space. But yeah, it's a fort. It's colonization. They literally came to be like, we're going to take these resources and like try to like trick these indigenous people into you know letting us steal more and they surely didn't there were a lot of conflicts they ended up firebombing the big houses with cannonballs uh right into the village at one point there's a long and deadly history of resistance to colonization um the exploits of empire on this coast and like you know that's some hudson's bay stuff back then right but right now i'd argue that like western forest products is the modern hudson's bay to do the same thing it's just in very more modern economic manners and a much more nuanced kind of legal mumbo jumbo way where it's like totally. oh you signed this one document back in 1914 totally yeah totally that's a that's a big statement prove me wrong <laughs> they're the largest land baron in the north island on the coast maybe so western forest products is the equivalent of hudson bay that's like a big statement <laughs> to make yeah uh, how how is that yeah i mean <clears throat> so the tree farm license regime and the sort of uh post forest practices code world circa 2003 um where the bc liberals dished out massive amounts of forest tenure and centralized um uh, logging rights on, on the coast um, is kind of the beginning of the end. I mean, the, obviously logging before that wasn't done too great either, but I feel like in our current sort of recent 30-year framework, um, by and large, the worst of it began in the early 2000s when the Forest Practices Code was nuked and this professional reliance regime was set up and a results-based code and... Um, and then a lot of the large corporations could concentrate wealth and concentrate tenure into these big companies. Um, and that's why it's also centralized in how companies like Interfor or Canfor or Western can have so much tenure um, over so much land that was never theirs and still isn't. Um, and they just have so much control. Like in a lot of places, Western is a more important uh, player than the government is like they control more of the land than even government mandates do that's how kind of backdoor privatized the professional reliance regime um, has made things where where these corporations basically subcontract and hire out professionals to meet the government targets certainly the objectives for landscape level stuff is set by government but you know if you're hired you're not going to bite the hand that feeds like the professionals eventually end up kind of getting uh, absolved into the same culture of 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 uh sort of hubris that the corporate sector has around owning large tracts of land and you got to remember too like in this part of the world like you, you you know you started this interview asking me like how did i get into forest stuff in particular i got into forest stuff in particular because it's everything that's here you know, we, we live in the coastal temperate rainforest. It's everything. It's rare globally, right? Like the amount of, I think, te temperate rainforest, about 4% of the Earth's surface around the, around the world, even less than that is coastal temperate rainforest. And even less than that is coastal temperate rainforest that is salmon subsidized. 
ecosystems as well, from the Columbia River to the Fraser, the Skeena, the Nas, and all the coastal systems. Um, so basically, when you're talking about forest, it's almost code for talking about land. In this part of the world, you don't really get to talk about land without talking about forests. You have to. Inherently, you're talking about the largest landscape level experiment that Western European corporate industrial complex has created, which is forestry. Right? Don't let anyone ever tell you that forestry is just kind of like this neat resource thing. Like, no, we're we've never experimented with a land base this big, this drastically, this fast, ever. Like we are playing hot and loose with an ecosystem that's evolved over millennia. Right. And it's the corporate sector that's done that. And it's the deregulation of these ecosystems that's done that. So companies like Western Forest Products have just unhuman levels of control over the land. You know, it's, they think of themselves as a forest company, but by and large, we're talking about indigenous territories and who has the right to make decisions about them. Well, yeah, because they don't own the land outright. Technically, it's it's crown land yeah. by so-called Canada standards. Mm. Crown land taken from indigenous people, and they just own the right to log. operate on it. Yeah, to log. Yeah, yeah. See how they uh, to log how they see fit, basically. Yeah. So I would say that's like pretty akin to like large colonial projects of empire. That's 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 like Hudson's Bay Company, right? They want to enclose the land. They want to uh, separate indigenous people from their access to the land, make a lot of money from it, and give it back to the to the lords back home. You know, that's Hudson's Bay Company. The shareholders. The shareholders. Right. And I'm and it's funny, like operating in that framework too from a European mindset like like you were saying like these lands are completely different than any forest that's existed <clears throat> in europe yet we come at it from like a silviculture perspective of like things that we learned in germany when we did our first tree farm in the 1700s and mm. it's like yeah there's not the same type of um i guess wisdom or understanding to these forests yet we operate like we know everything only to find out every usually about every decade or something something comes along some new bit of scientific information that makes us be like oh oh we've been fucking up <laughs> and then they change one little bit yeah. one little maybe maybe <laughs> right and then but then that has to go through the whole process of of i guess being changed from like a policy level which is heavily influenced by lobbyists which you know these massive companies can afford to hire and pay mm -hmm. out so often like even when policy changes do happen they're still favoring the new model that like the forest industry or the big players have like kind of aided along the way i would say it's worse than than that i would say they're active participants in creating the laws that they want like the big corporate lobby lob like timber lobbying sector uh they literally participate in the creation of forest regulations. Like they make it with the government. They they make it to their suiting, you know? It's not as simple as just they influence it. They're in there. They're right in there. They always have been. Right? They they always have been to the degree that when you hear it, you know, forestry feeds my family or BC was you know, forestry built BC, that's true. Right? Forestry built BC. Like like you know, Splendor Sinukasu, like the actual Latin of, of you know, on the sigil of the province of British Columbia, splendor without limits, right? Of fish and forests and mining, all this opportunity, there could be no limits. You know, of course there's no limits. And quite literally, that colonial enterprise sought to basically just keep going and going and going and going. And many of the townships that exist were logging camps. Like forestry built BC. And I think this is 
part of why if you're stepping up and saying, hey, uh, maybe we shouldn't do this, at least not so hard and so intense, like maybe we should stretch out our rotations and maybe we shouldn't have profits be the primary motive. And like, what about morale mushrooms or like, what about spiritual values in the forest and mm, stuff like that? Cultural. Cultural values, certainly. And if you, but if you're saying that there's something kind of, uh, anti-British Columbian about that to many people, right? You're, you're now the antithesis to the thing that created the province of British Columbia. So you're a traitor, right? You're, you, the very things that you're proposing might be wrong are what created this great province of ours. And so that that's the traitor piece that I think I'm like grappling with. I'm like, oh, I, I see that now. Like I, I see how this can be so antithetical to the way some people think about their relationship with land. Right. Well, people take it so personally because it's like, yeah, you feel like you're attacked. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a shame that, that it's kind of been built up that way because I mean, certainly in my mind, like I don't see myself as being like anti-logging by any means. It's more about, yeah, finding ways to do it better and do it different to create a truly sustainable model. But like when the status quo has been set for so long by so many powerful people and organizations and groups that really benefit from that power it's like how do you as just like an individual person within society you know it raises some real big questions as to how much um how much change we as like citizens can really impart on the systems we live in you know like Mm. when you do everything you make the calls you send the emails you sign the letters and things are still brushed aside because of some high-paying lobbying group yeah like, what's the point? Yeah, and you wonder why people then take to the roads to blockade. Exactly. You're like, ooh, you do the rule of law. And you're like, well, law doesn't work. Right. For most people. Not even just like for a certain niche, you know, wacky fringe group. Like, no, for the vast majority of the public, there are no access points to actually have a positive influence and feed into processes that make good policy. So people are at their wits end, you know, and the provincial government only has themselves to blame for when people end up taking drastic actions and doing wacky stuff and hanging off of bridges and blockading roads and, you know, going and sleeping dragons, whatever, like. That is entirely of the province's making, you know. There's no one else to blame for those kind of things. But then they have the RCMP to come in and clean up, you know. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, before, before we spiral down that, <laughs> um, let me just... In talking about colonization, um, like you've done a lot of work with NGOs, different nonprofits. How do you see that world having kind of been dictated by that same kind of colonial mindset and what are you and people doing in that world to kind of change that? Hmm. I have so I have so many thoughts. Uh, (laughs) Just see them running through your head. System error. Just grab one. (laughs) All right. I'll grab one. I think... Or I think early. early (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where to start. I I think... like I think white fragility is is a, is a beginning place, to be honest, where people, uh, especially non-indigenous settler folks, know there's something wrong in like very basic terms, and they know they're probably the reason. And then it's like an oh fuck moment, like, and then mountains of guilt. Once once you've like allowed yourself to be like oh and kind of see a certain reality that we've been protected from and insulated from for a long time, uh, then comes this huge tidal wave of, of, of white settler guilt. 
Um, and that's a lot to deal with and it's a lot to process. And so I think people are at very different places in, in, in that arc. But I think once you've worked through, uh, some parts of, of, of white settler guilt and you know, these are lifelong projects, right? Like I am, I am very active. This isn't still, something you just no, like no, fix no, no. one day and you're like, I'm over it. I'm healed. No, of course. No, no, totally. It's, it's a constant a, process. It's a, it's a process and it's a collective process too. It's right. an individual one and then it's a collective one. Um, so moving through those, those pieces of, of white settler guilt, what comes out the other side of it, I hope, I think what I'm trying to do is to substitute the guilt with responsibility. And when you can kind of flip the framing in that way, all of a sudden, uh, I don't feel, I don't feel paralysis by guilt. Instead, I feel activated by responsibility. Mm. And, um, and then you can kind of like start to step up and step into spaces where you can work through figuring out your role in allyship or being an accomplice or, um, working with peers in your own community around unpacking their whiteness or kind of manufactured sense of professionalism or, or class differentials and whatnot and sort of begin the journey of intersectional conservation or intersectional environmentalism or what I'm kind of like loosely thinking lately of is sort of like a, like an abolitionist environmentalism or a trauma-informed environmentalism uh, an anti-colonial environmentalism. Um, and then, and I don't know what these things are, right? They're just words that I'm sort of like rattling off, but I'm, I'm interested in them. And I think there are a lot of people in the conservation movement or the environmental movement who are ready and they're, and, and, and also kind of like creating a bit of a, a space where we can have accountability through and with one another to be like, right, we've done a lot of damage. That sucks we also have some pretty good intentions. You can also still do damage with good intentions. So you're like, okay, square that circle. Right. And then what kind of comes out the other side is, is a really light footed sort of two eyed way of seeing where you begin to sort of hear what communities are saying in a different light. And you begin to kind of, um, think about land differently and think about our own ancestry differently, you know, like where did my ancestors come from? Do I have like intergenerational trauma trauma that I'm like not addressing, you know, like why did my ancestors have to leave Scotland and come to the new world in some way? And what was the violence that they internalized and brought with them and then perpetuated here, you know, and kind of just transplanted this colonial framework that was happening in Europe at the time with the British or the Romans or however you want to go far, you want to go back. But that kind of, uh, that cannibal mentality, that sickness of, 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 of colonization, we brought it, you know, that, and, mm. it, and we brought it not in just a conceptual way. Um, it's in our families right? Like this is in our blood. This is like part of our bodies. It comes with, with these types of traumas. And if we haven't done the work in ourselves and in our own communities to unpack those things and address them and shift from guilt and anger and pain and sadness towards responsibility and empowerment and mutual aid and sort of like community-based validation, then you're just going to cause harm again. You're just going to re-perpetuate that violence. And so I think environmentalism and a lot of like in some nonprofit spaces, but I'm thinking more in terms of the environmental movement right now. And I, when I say this, we're in a moment of reckoning where we're like, okay, 
there's a massive intersection here. There's many, but there's a massive one based on the fact that we've been basically making parks on stolen land. And like parks have been just as violent of a tool of colonization as resource extraction has. And you're like, mm, not really supposed to say that in conservation, right? Like uh, we know tar sands are worse than Wood Buffalo National Park. Like, of, of course, right? <laughs> yeah, but also, you know, colonization itself contains multitudes. There are lesser and worse evils at play all the time. There is goodness even in some parts of colonization, sure. But like the point is, Wood Buffalo National Park still like basically drove people out of their territory and it's still illegal for them to do their traditional practices in that park, right? This is a celebrated national park in this country, right? And so for groups like Sierra Club BC and, and many other nonprofit groups, I think we're in a space where we're trying to, um, yeah, not only just sit with that, but then also sort of like uh, sh shift the balance back a little bit more. And I, I, I don't know how to gauge. I mean, it's a new, it's a new space to kind of operate in. So there's not a lot of comparisons to kind of be like, how are we doing at that? Um, so I'm not going to claim that we're, we're doing a really great job. Um, but I do feel proud that we're shifting from white settler guilt to more of a footing of, uh, responsibility for, uh, our role and, and what that might look like going forward and sort of decolonizing, um, environmental advocacy a little bit and, and, um, uh, trying not to be the protagonist in conservation stories, but rather, you know, a supporting character in the plot, right? These aren't our lands to destroy or save. This is a place that we may or may not have been welcome to in, in different scenarios and, uh, that we are very privileged to, um, be able to sit here in this space and sort of live on but with that privilege comes a lot of responsibility and unpacking legacies of violence that extend beyond our grandparents 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 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah i see that um embodied a lot especially in like americanized pursuits of like the american dream and do whatever you can to survive to get by like you versus kind of everybody else to achieve like uh, like my grandpa immigrated from denmark after the war he was like 16 he immigrated to Canada first, then found his way down to the States, just again, trying to like find what was best for his family. But it was very much like, and like, great dude, like no harm by him. But it was like the, like being like, he sold rabbits to Nazis in, in German occupied, like in Nazi occupied Denmark, like to get by. Yeah. So it's like that That's mentality real. of just like having to like fight and scrounge your way and tooth and nail, like get out, like do what you can to achieve the American dream is like a really real kind of like embedded mentality. And I think within that people don't, you don't think about the long-term effects or ramifications of your actions because you're just so concerned with just surviving, just mm -hmm. existing and yeah. getting to where you need to be. And it's, and it's, it's toxic when it compounds on itself. And then when you have like a culture or a society that's, that that has been built on it for even a hundred years, mm -hmm. like we're seeing in this country, mm -hmm. um, like just the level of like attachment to that, because like people came over with nothing on their backs and mm -hmm. had to fight for everything. So you're telling me that the way we've been doing it is wrong. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a tough pill to swallow. It is. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And especially at the same time when conservationists like John Muir are so celebrated mm. and like, I don't know if you've read any of John Muir's, um, a little bit. Yeah. Stuff. Like dude was a wild card. <laughs> he was like yeah. climbing mountains barefooted in like trousers. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, I forgot my sweater, but at least I have this stale piece of bread. Like it, it's, it's nuts. But, mm -hmm. um, 
the way that that is celebrated as like this kind of like, yeah, conservation is like he was doing it. He was like protecting it from development and doing all the good things that we see as evils it, through this lens, like over the past, like, I mean, through the nineties and stuff. And I feel like in the early two thousands that started to shift in like kind of the social spectrum. And it's certainly now mm. 20 years later where we're like, really, I feel like I remember hearing things in like school, like, what do you mean stole it from the Indians? Like cowboys and Indians, like we fought and like, it was this thing. It was like this, this unspoken thing that we never learned. I feel like that's taught now in school at least. Yeah. More so. More at than least what I, I remember. I, yeah. I feel like society, like socially, we're talking about it a lot more than I ever thought we would be when I was 14. Yep. Which is good. I guess it's a start. Yeah. Like, not neutral, but yeah, it's, it's not good. neutral yeah. for sure. But I mean, uh, like, I guess going to the root of like, conservation things like John Muir like Sierra Club's roots like are with John Muir actually I forgot literally, about the that the Sierra Nevadas yeah literally like John Muir we don't have the, the Sierra, Sierra Nevadas up here right? right like why are we even called Sierra Club in this part of the right. world we should be called the Cascadia Club or the Rockies I don't know I like Cascadia I'm a Cascadia fan okay I heard that Um. so what what are the issues I guess with like that kind of that generalized concept of conservation that like John Muir kind of started with Yosemite and everything like Oh, I mean, <clears throat> there's no white saviors. Mm. There's, I mean, all all the all the Leopold, like uh, even going into more recent conservation like figures, but that sort of like white male uh, <laughs> savior <laughs> concept um, mm-hmm. is a, a product of 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 white supremacy and uh, a white dominant culture that sees the land as terra nullius or you know void of people and culture and um you know uh, uh, an area for the doctrine of discovery for you know man to move forward and Mm -hmm. forge new grounds and new like i don't know it sounds gross coming out of my mouth like uh it's awful it's awful um and i think what i find more interesting and more frightening (laughs) than just like you know decolonizing the kind of old school white male concept of of conservation is the fact that i'm petrified that we're doing it again now like what i don't know is like i'm sure back then they might have been like okay cool we're like stopping development like this can only be a good thing Mm. and i and and then you get to go hard at that um and I often will have that feeling myself and many others, you know, my peers and stuff were like, of course we're on, we're on the right side of history, you know, like we're doing good. We're mm. doing real good. Um, and like, maybe we're even grappling with the hard, you know, complex issues of, of some of this stuff. But like by and large, you know, it, the next generation, the next four generations are going to look back and be like, God, how did they that up so bad? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going to call you know, leaders in the conservation movement now out for the problematic things that they weren't thinking about. Um, and that just scares the daylights out of me. I'm like, Oh God. And I, I, I lose sleep on that. Cause I'm like, cause I know I have a white settler savior complex, you know? And, right. and so what do you do living with the paradox of yourself where you're like, right. I perpetuate a lot of these things that I can name in this interview and yeah. yet still actively every day I continue to perpetuate a lot of those normativities mm-hmm. that recreate problems that like some poor kid is going to have to fix coming up behind me in the next gen of like that does the work. And I'm just like, I'm, I, I struggle with a lot of um, paralysis with that where it makes me want to not do anything. You know, I always want to hide yeah. somehow. Um, but that's not taking responsibility. Yeah. So 
well and i mean there's like this thing i was having a conversation with a friend the other day like doing restoration work in like remote watersheds going out and planting trees and stabilizing slopes doing all that stuff but to access it you have to use a helicopter during yeah. the climate crisis and it's like <laughs> jet, like, a, jet a fool I, come to- <laughs> I mean it's like yeah i could row my boat there mm-hmm. take a week and then mm-hmm. get to the site and then pack like we were going up 800 meters so i'd have to like hike forge a path through the tr- through the through the bush with mm-hmm. all these trees trying mm-hmm. to plant and like we could do that yeah or we could just do it in a day and it's like when you're working to correct a problem so like in my mind i feel like i'm you know doing the right thing helping mm. fix these watersheds that have been damaged by logging and stuff in the past but at the same time it is perpetuating climate change by using a helicopter to get there but it's like where do you draw the line like you can't just do nothing i draw the line at a systemic perspective that's where i draw the line like our job isn't to be the most ethical participant in an evil apparatus. Our job is to tear at the pillars of that apparatus, mm. you know? So like fly that helicopter, you know, smoke <laughs> a cigar, like, but like only in so far as you know how to have a, 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 a radical stance where you are actually tearing at the pillars of that same system that allowed for that jet a fuel to be refined from tar sands oil and sent through the trans mountain pipeline, you know, so long as you're working on the stop it at the source, you know, like anti-fossil fuel, like industry sector level, like there's no pure pathway within capitalism. Right. So like none of what we're doing is particularly like ethically pure in this concept. And this is what I don't like about liberalism is it puts the onus on the individual to be like, and then, we're, and then we're all either made to be hypocrites or yeah. And you're like, no, you can't buy an ethical pathway within an evil system. That's just not an option. It's designed that way. There's intention there. But if you have sort of like a prefigurative world where you get to kind of like work and build lateral power within your community where you can actually stop pipelines in their tracks or you can actually end fossil fuel corporation products like before they even get mined out of the earth i would say that's fairly radical um and so we'll just have to live with the contradiction for a time until we make those transitional phases but like don't let liberalism fool you into thinking that you're like completely unethical because you've flown a helicopter somewhere and drove the truck here today like (laughs) i think that's yeah that's 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 like neoliberal capitalism winning if you if (laughs) if we've been reduced to that level of like hmm darn you know right and and i burnt gas today i'm a bad person i'm terrible i'm like so what's the option like sitting at home on your hands doing nothing because Mm. then that is such a common argument that i hear all the time where it's like oh how can you how can you say you know believe in climate change but then drive your car everywhere how do you how can you be anti-logging when you live in a house made of wood it's like watch me it's like I'll yeah <laughs> again it's 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 not about like doing you, you they cannot exist in a different pathway so it's like mm. doing what you can through the paths and the ways that they exist now so that we can do better in the future yeah create something better yeah and ideally one that i mean not ideally like it has to include everybody mm. like mm-hmm. all perspectives all considerations and i feel like yeah it's growing pains um 
culturally. I think it's, it's funny psychologically. We do this as humans all the time. Like you today, you're like, oh, this is who I am. I like embody these things. This is me now. But if you think mm. about you 10 years ago, you, same thought. You're like, this is me who I am now. What are you talking I'm, about? No. <laughs> but like, you don't see yourself in 10 years. Yeah. Like, oh my God, 10 years ago, I was such an idiot. Like at any given point, we yeah. think we're there. We think we are who we are. This is the type of music I like. This is what I wear. This is how I identify. And socially we're doing that same thing as a society it's like we think we are this thing but we're constantly in this state of growing and evolving so it's like yeah you're going to make mistakes along your path and two generations from now are going to have to clean up your mess sure you can be paralyzed by that or you can just recognize that that's the way that life is and like you can still do more and do better now and recognize that we're still growing and transitioning as a people and as a society as like an evolving thing you know nothing stays the same yeah yeah. Yeah. The Zapatistas have a really beautiful saying. I forget what it is in Spanish, but it's um, walking. We ask questions um, and it's sort of like they're, they're both creating, they're walking, they're living the new world and the new type of relationship they want to build with themselves and each other in the land while simultaneously asking or resisting the exploits of empire and capitalism at the same time. You can do both of these at once there's not a mutual exclusivity um and i've always liked that and it's given me a lot of freedom to be like right right i can like work a nine to five and do what i got to do in this world while also cultivating emergent beautiful relationships that i want to see in the new world i can do these at once and it's not a contradiction in fact they're oftentimes mutually reinforcing well, it's like the idea of a just transition. Like, have you heard that phrase? Like, yeah. <clears throat> just transition, like often referring to like climate change stuff. Like, how do you include everybody in a transition away from fossil fuels to electric, say? Um, but within that, I feel like there's like we have to like give our psyches a just transition too. You know, like it's not mm. going to be the flip of a switch where we're just all of a sudden like the world is better tomorrow. As amazing as it would be like it's going to take work and it's going to take awkward moments where you're yeah riding you're stepping on both lot both sides of the line and kind of playing in both sides of it in order to get to a better place but like mm. we have to give ourselves a break at some point or else we're just going to drive ourselves nuts and not get anything done <laughs> or be totally miserable in the process or maybe that's part yeah. of the process yeah i have no idea i think we contain multitudes like i think we can grieve and give ourselves a break and fight like hell um, all at once. I like that. Mm. Would you say you're an optimist? No. <laughs> that simple? Next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, uh, no, I don't. I, I have a weird relationship with, with hope. Uh, I think it's a strange concept. I, I like it. It sounds really convenient. Um, it's marketable conceptually uh but a i like more of a concept of like like authenticity and um and right action uh, in a sense like in a buddhist sense of right action cause and, mm -hmm. and and reaction and sort of like a moral imperative i think i think i believe in moral imperatives um and i don't think hope necessarily is present with that i guess what i mean to say is like <clears throat> do you feel that the work that you're doing now is creating the change you would like to see in the world and do you feel like 
you're making progress. You feel like it's getting better or that you're making moves, you know, not necessarily hoping for like a better outcome, but like, do you, Mm -hmm. like what gets you, what keeps you going? A a, a moral imperative. Uh, and like, uh, profound sense of like trust and love and responsibility for this like wacky marvelous thing called life um but i don't i don't think it's it's optimism that does that does much for me or or hope really i think uh uh yeah i don't know anything else (sighs) yeah yeah i don't know is that the wrong answer no no there's there are no wrong answers i don't yeah like i i I struggle with this one often especially as somebody who does like advocacy work and who is like ostensibly trying to cultivate hope and optimism in other people and like build new potential and stuff um but i think the reality is, is i feel a little bit more empowered with grief than i do with optimism um because of if you're not grieving right now, you didn't really know what's already been lost. And there's so much loss. Like, I I feel numb even, like, working on the island and the coast right now because I go back to places and forests that, you know, I've, I've had naps in and I've returned to for years and places that I've, like, made love in and, like, slept in and eaten from the earth directly it's like made my actual body composition had very sort of deep relationships with um that have been blown up by dynamite (laughs) you know like they're like a they they drill through orchid patches and then put blasting caps with dynamite down into the bottom of those and then fill it with amex and then blow it the fuck up you know, they literally blow up trees that are like thousands of years old. That's crazy, you know? And I'm like, uh, I'm more interested in like comprehending how terrible that is. Um, and respecting what that space was for me at one point in time. And for many other people and many other non-living creatures that were there, um, then, cultivating some kind of manufactured uh sense of of hope or optimism like essentially it, I'm, I'm i'm just i'm just sad like i'm sad like species are going extinct every day you know and i don't want to i don't want to not look at that and i feel like there's a really dangerous thing that happens with optimism where it doesn't grieve properly and if the optimism that you're talking about isn't one that is inclusive to like the profound level of loss that we are like actively contributing to every single day. I want no part of it. Um, I would rather act out of a space of a moral imperative to be like, Oh no, like I respect this world so much that whether I believed in a new potential or not, um, I would still do the same thing. My course of action remains the same. Right action is true to me. Um, not because I need some kind of solution at the end of that, but because I like, I respect the sacredness of my, my presence on earth and I respect wherever or whoever, however I'm in this space. Um, <clears throat> it's, damn, you, this is going deep. Well, it's interesting to me. Um, the concept of like shifting baselines, especially through a generational lens, because like you're talking about like that forest that you had that great connection with. Um, and like by no means am I 
saying that that wasn't a great connection, but you can have a totally different relationship with where we are now, this field, this wasn't always like this, like this was a forest at one point. Yeah. Um, so it's like within, like, does that mean that like you forming connection with these flowers here, with these lands, like all the fields and everything that lives here, all these different birds and stuff that exist here now because of the way things are now versus the forest that would have existed here 200 years ago, is that different or better? Or does it still, does it, does like the positive connection you have with the land as it is today still like outweigh or I guess equal out to the grief of the loss of what was here before, even though you had no connection to it? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I can't answer that because I didn't know it. Right. Um, but I will say that one of the biggest um, shifts in my thinking around hope and optimism and grief and loss was spending a bit of time in my ancestors' homelands in, in Loch Fyne in Scotland, um, in Strucker and Strathlachlan, uh, McLaughlin on my mother's side. Um, and like eating from the ocean, you know, I was eating oysters and clams and mussels and fish and like beautiful food directly from the land base there that my ancestors came from <clears throat> and seeing people live very close to the ground, very close to earth, very simple lives. Um, and you know, the oak forests are gorgeous. Um, and they're old. And they're in a place that was colonized by the British Empire before they ever set foot over here. Um, and yet there are still people living in sort of traditional manners over there. And the land is still beautiful and still alive and it's still full of food and life and culture. And like that was pretty empowering. I think that was something that made me feel less guilty um, that, 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 that my people were like inherently evil or that anything, we had this Midas touch, you know, with wherever we went. So to actually go back that many generations to a place where my ancestors would have left during a, you know, a period of, of intense political hardship, certainly, um, has given me a certain level of hope where I'm like, right, we don't necessarily fuck up everything we touch, you know, and there still are people that are living really beautiful lives in, in, on a land base for, for a long, long time in my lineage. Um, and that gives me a different sense. But again, like I think about that more in a framing of a moral imperative self-awareness and then taking responsibility for my presence here rather than one of sort of like a pop culture, uh, solutions oriented, um, thinking around, around optimism and, and shifting baselines relative to what's been lost and what, what I'm experiencing being lost. Does well, that make sense? Does yeah, yeah, it does. I follow. Okay. Um, but I think like that's what I was kind of getting at with like shifting baselines. It's like we know what we have now, right. but we will never experience what was the generation before us because that generation, for whatever reasons, didn't have, you could say they didn't have as strong of a connection to it. So they changed it in a way that has left it in a poorer state for us. Sure. Um, but like, so we're like, how do you, how do you properly grieve something that you never fully knew? So, like, when we read stats about, like, forest cover loss across Turtle Island, it's, like, profound. You're like, what do you mean 94% of the forest has been lost across North right. America? Right. That's insane. Yeah. How do you even fathom that? It's like, yeah. we, don't, we don't know that. So, yeah. it's like, how do you, in doing this work and seeing, like, you know, even if it's, like, a, a block that you know and it's, like, 10 hectares and it gets mm -hmm. cut down one summer and, like, mm -hmm. you can grieve that and feel that visceral pain knowing that it will never be the same, Right. 
especially like within your lifetime. But that's not to say that things can't ever get better and that like generations from now will be able to have as strong, if not like the same strength of connection to that land in a different state. It's possible. Yeah. Totally possible. Yeah. And so I guess in terms of like, when I say like optimism, like I feel like, do you, do you feel that you are leaving this world in a better state for future generations, your actions? I have no idea. I have no idea. Wow. Yeah. I don't know how anyone would ever answer that question. I'd like to believe that. Wow. Yeah. You're turning uh, my head upside down right now. Cause I've always thought like every couple of years I do this trick with myself where I'm like, okay, Mark, can you say with a hundred percent certainty that there is like a place that still exists in its current form because of anything you've done is can you even say for sure that one tree is living today because of something you've done that wouldn't have been living had you not done it or even some fish you know like find me a metric that i can reach out and touch and 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 pick whatever metric that might be and every once in a while i'll do that and i'll be like okay hmm you know and i'll mull it out and i'm like well you know, I've dropped a couple of trees. I've done firewood this year. Like, <laughs> I've cleared a bit of land for some project or something. And so I know I've done that. Um, I've eaten a lot of fish. I've caught a lot of fish. I've killed some things. You know, I shot a deer last year. Um, I've burned a lot of gas. I've traveled a bunch. I've eaten food from, from the land in humble ways that I, I think I can. Um, but is there anywhere that I can actually say I've improved the life of of that fish or I've helped it in some material way. And it's really hard to say yes. It's really hard to say yes. I, you know, but I don't, I don't need that. I don't need that, but it's an interesting experiment to do with yourself. I, I just try to spread the positive work out without metrics necessarily. And, you know, maybe that's a bad idea or maybe it would be good to kind of know and measure against those kind of things. But, um, it isn't the reason why I do the work to, to be honest. Like I, I trust a lot of other people. Um, and I trust that like being in a relationship with people and places, um, translates into different realities. And I, I don't need to measure that. I just need to trust the people around me and, and the places too. like, you activate the landscape to do what it wants. Like we're a tool of the land. We don't create outcomes for the land. That's like sort of how I think about it. Mm-hmm. But even that mindset you're saying there, like, you're like, is there one tree that's alive now because of something I've done? Like, isn't that kind of at its root, that kind of same conservation theory? Yeah. Yeah. As John Muir. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that's why I say, but it's just like, those aren't the metrics. Yeah. But you ask, like, have, can I say that I've had a positive impact? What's the metric? Well, I guess I, I, I kind of, I think when I ask that question, I think less of like a literal calculable calculatable 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 metric calculable calculable i think of it as a less tangible calculable metric and like more like do you go to sleep at night feeling like you contributed to the betterment of the world yeah i don't know in a way i don't know yeah and and see i, I find that interesting like because i feel like you do some really powerful work i have like a lot of the people i know that's like one of the reasons i wanted to have you on this podcast and stop, chat with you oh, oh praise no, stop. but um it's just, I find it interesting how people frame the work they do in their own heads and like what keeps them going. Mm. Cause like I think about myself and, and like you totally flipped my head up thinking about like trying to measure it because it's like, 
I, I agree with you on like that moral imperative thing. And like, I've, I feel like I, where I can and I'm conscious of it, I try to take the high road every time and just do what I feel is like right in my core. I've turned down like so many like high paying jobs and things that would have been like amazing or sponsors for this fucking podcast <laughs> where it's like, yeah, I could have made a lot of money, but it didn't align. And like, I want to be true to that. Mm-hmm. And like my kind of like, my thing that I always think about is like, I don't have any kids, but I have some amazing nieces in me, this world. Me too. I've got like so many nieces. I have five. I think I have like five or six you now. And then, well, a couple of nephews now too. Cool. And they're not really like my brothers didn't have kids. It's, mm. I have come from a big extended family. So it's like, they're my cousin's kids, but mm-hmm. we're all, they're my nieces. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So when I'm like faced with a situation where like, I feel like I'm making a choice or speaking up about something that like rings true to me. It's like, I'm always like, what kind of world are those kids going to grow up in? You know, it's like not about me. I'm like trying to think like on a higher and like, I feel like generally I try to like, like going to sleep at night. I feel like I'm contributing to like creating a better world for them, whether it's mm-hmm. fighting mm-hmm. the fucking the patriarchy and mm-hmm. like trying to do things to like make their lives easier as women in this fucked up world we live in mm-hmm. or, um, you know, environmental work, like trying to like keep areas not only like alive and healthy and functioning for them to like go see the beauty and the majesty of it and fall in love, but so that it's like a healthy functioning ecosystem that doesn't like burn their house down in next summer, you know, mm-hmm. like, cause there's so much of this that we've taken for granted in this system that we live in because we just think of it as, as it is, you know, it's like, we think of it like basic subtraction where it's like, or math where it's like, you can cut down a couple trees and as long as you plant as many back or even more we plant yeah. three trees for everyone we cut down <clears throat> it's we're doing better but it's like no because within that there's all sorts of like hidden costs or things that you didn't calculate into that initial equation and all of a sudden we have these compounding factors that just become a really big deal that mm-hmm. we need to start addressing so it's like how mm-hmm. can we i guess shift the ways of thinking to start taking into account those uncalculable things mm-hmm. that we haven't necessarily considered in the past okay fine okay fine I, I, I do think, I do think the work, uh, has contributed yes. positively. I cracked you. You've broken me down. <laughs> I flipped you and you flipped me. Um, and I'll give an example. Uh, and I think maybe if I, if I remember that I can like frame the work in terms of movement building and cultivating healthy cultures of resistance, mm-hmm. um, and that I don't need a metric, um, that then it allows me a wider latitude to think about doing the work in the world. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, years ago, over 10 years ago, um, walking the length of Vancouver Island um, in the, the get out migration, uh, this big protest march to get fish farms out of the water. Um and there was a number of folks all, all started in, in Sony Tulos, 15, maybe 17 of us. And we started walking and we were going to, to legislature and we walked all the way down Island. We popped out into the discovery islands and went to Quadra and Gabriola mm-hmm. and all these places all the way down having rallies in each town, each place. And it, I forget how long it took, maybe three weeks or so. Um, and by the time we hit the Pat Bay Highway coming out of Sydney. People canoed down the Fraser River across the Salish Sea and wow. met us in Sydney. Like it was a huge That's amazing. mobilization. And we took over the entire Pat Bay Highway all, all the way from the ferry to legislature. Like we shut down the highway for the entire day. And there was, I think the count was around 10,000 people levied on 
Victoria, like we shut down Victoria. We certainly shut down all of legislature. Um, but I remember two specific feelings. One, when we were clearing Campbell river going South, I was like, wait, we're going the wrong way. The fish farms are that way. But we're going to this arbitrary building in Victoria where we've like assigned some type of political power to. Mm-hmm. We're going the wrong way. And I remember this. It was a very strong feeling. But the mobilization was so powerful that we're like, yes, you know, you're, you're building the movement in that way. And then the second feeling that rocked me really hard was that two days after we'd had the largest environmental rally in BC's history to get fish farms out of the water at the time, um, four more fish farms were approved in the Broughton Archipelago like within 48 hours of us like shutting down victoria and i was just like what's the point of democracy and mobilizing people Mm. if it doesn't actually get us across the finish line for the policy decisions we need and so the power framing shift and then it wasn't until the Kwakwakwak community decided to be like screw that we're going to go and occupy the fish farms you know they didn't go the wrong way they went the right way they mm-hmm. went into their homelands. They went. They 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 fought them on their own terms, in their own territories, and they occupied. But I think the work we'd done prior to that, especially around mobilizing and movement building, to build a base level of support, so that when they went and occupied, people were like, "Right, I understand the issue. I know which side of the fence I stand on, and I support this work, and I see why they're occupying." meant that they had this huge movement behind them and so fundamentally i think that was a big part in like helping push the province over the edge to actually end mm-hmm. up switching the permitting and actually not allowing fish fish farming stuff to continue in the Broughton roundtable process for all of its you know it's not a perfect thing i know like but um at any rate my point just being like if we hadn't done that movement building work early on and like mass mobilization stuff and created a a culture of resistance to this like sector that was degrading wild salmon um it would have been a lot harder for for folks occupying to like build the support that they needed to really push it across the finish line there so in that light like you could never measure how much goodness was done in the world there but i do believe that that is good uh and i do believe that that I think about my work in terms of um, creating cultures of resistance and and uh, and and movement power. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I feel like that kind of urge to cling to some sort of metric to gauge how well you're doing is is in its sense like a very Western thing. It's like how are your grades? How did you score? Um, and it goes down to like, what type of species is that plant? How does it fit within the tree of life that we've like identified like taxonomy? It's like how, so it's like a very, it's a very normal thing. I think within our Western society to try to have calculable, tangible results that we can feel and measure and see that we're creating something, you know, whether it's like physically cutting down a tree and turning it into a table or like whatever it is, like we, we want to be able to have like a tangible product, but I think sometimes the beauty in the work is not having that. And it's kind of like this energy or like a thing that you like feel where it's like, if you feel good about what you're doing and you go to sleep at night, like, I don't know, feeling good. Like that's, maybe that's all you need. Yeah. Or melatonin. Or melatonin. Yeah. Yeah. Some iron too. That can help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> your, your story there. Um, it, it, it's a nice little pivot for this conversation um, because it is like, 
coming out of Fairy Creek, which is probably like the biggest social movement regarding saving old growth forests since the war in the woods in the early 90s. Mm. I mean, this has been, this is a subject that people have talked about for decades, continue to talk about. Like, why do you feel like this movement was so strong this past summer? And do you feel like it accomplished anything? Do you feel like it fell short? Like, what do you think? Like, and, and now moving forward, like with the save the old growth movement where it's like, yeah, like you mentioned earlier, people barricading themselves on public highways to raise awareness for this. Is that feel like it's walking in the, the wrong direction? Like you were saying, like, like, I, I guess like, how do you feel people can make a difference when the system of democracy that's supposed to like allow every voice to be heard isn't working and hearing every voice? How do people get their voice heard? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I believe in a diversity of tactics. Um, you have to. Any student of social change knows that a diversity of tactics is by and large the only um, way social change comes. <clears throat> and, you know, M MLK says that, um, that civil disobedience is the language of the unheard. Uh, and I think that's bang on. I mean, you're asking how do people have their voices heard? The answer is any way that they will be heard. Um, and that's why people do what they have to do to feel that. And those tactics and those strategies and those voices will be different relative to where people are at in their, their social location, their community, um, their age, uh, who they are. Like there's just so much variability there. So if you're a, a church group, um, and you feel your faith is, um, the space in which you want to do the work in terms of having your voice heard, uh, it might be writing a choir song about old growth and like moving an audience to think about forests in a different way through their faith. Um, or, or setting up a meeting with your, your faith group with a local MLA and that MLA is scratching their head to be like, wait, why is this, why is this Anglican church group meeting with mm. me about old growth? Like, I didn't see that one coming, you know, it's not like some Sierra club volunteer here. This is, this is, an, this is Susan, you know, from <laughs> yeah. 3230, like Partridge street, like, um, or if you're, um, a medicine gatherer for your community and it's important that the devil's club groves that are part of your family tradition and, and uh, are at risk of logging, then maybe you're going to, you're going to do the work to engage your band council and uh, um, go through that route avenue to make sure that uh, the band council knows that referrals coming through the office should, you know, ideally avoid this drainage where, where the community does, does, does medicine uh, work. Um, that's a way to have your voice heard. Um, maybe you go to uh, Canadian Tire and you get some Gorilla Glue and you go to the Second Arrows Bridge on a Monday morning and you're like, I don't care that I'm going to piss off hundreds of people trying to get to work today. Um, I'm just like, this is me shooting a flare off into the sky of the political environment of BC to be like, everybody shut up. Like, it's not working. You know, you need to, you need to shake the system somehow. And there's no convenient way to do that. Right. Like you don't, I love it when politicians tell you how you're supposed to protest them, <laughs> you know, and you're like, Oh, it doesn't work like that, bro. Sorry. Like we're going to piss you off. We're going to piss a lot of people off. Um, 
and that's how this shit works. Um, it always has, you know, you can't conveniently request for the towers of power to voluntarily give up their power to you, um, or to the people, um, necessarily. So if that's the way you need to have your voice heard, like, sweet, prepare yourself for the clapback that comes from that prepare yourself that maybe that'll have some negative repercussions mixed into the positive ones you're getting too. Um, and I don't, I don't know whether it's a good tactic. Um, I don't know whether Fairy Creek will get that watershed across the finish line in terms of like long-term protection. Um, you know, there's some heavy complexities with, with the punchy dot dot community, like by and large, why was it so much easier for so many people to mobilize to save the last ancient rainforest in a nation's territory relative to working with those communities so that they had a lot of wealth and wellness and healing and opportunity to revitalize language and cultural practices? Like, you know, what, what is that? Why is that? Why do we, why do we volley the largest civil disobedience movement in Western Canada for trees, but not people? Um, and I'm not making any moral judgment about what's better or worse, but I'm interested in why things play out that way. And I have a, a hunch as to what it is. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go there, not because I don't want to, but because I think fundamentally there's some, some raw political realities that, that matter, right? Like, so that watershed's in a deferral now. Deferrals last two years with an extension of four. We're looking at another provincial election coming up soon. And like, there's a lot of places on this coast that were, you know, fought for really hard at one point in time that were then lost 10 years later, five years later, three years later, because people didn't have deep long-term relationships with places and the communities of whom it's their territory. And so I'm interested in kind of a long game where, um, where it's 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 politically unacceptable, unacceptable, to even think about logging in some of these places, and instead of doing the emergency like holy shit, we need to mobilize now kind of stuff, it's kind of like a few more chess moves ahead to be like right, where do we create healthy relationships in places and cultivate economies that it would be ridiculous to log old growth in? It's not even a conversation, um, and it's a bit of a privilege to be able to think like that or to have the, the freedom to, to work in that way. Um, but I believe it, you know, like when the blockades were happening in the wall brand, um, that was like when I started working a little bit on, on forest stuff in the South Island in the, in the bite before there was a deferral there. Um, the story of that little part of the world and Teal Jones, um, logging there is that they would log, you know, two, three little, five hectare blocks or something. Um, and then people would find out, freak out, mobilize, go on blockade and you'd stave them off for a year or two. And Teal would be like, okay, cool. And they'd go and log somewhere else for a while. And then you can't hold the, you can't hold the front line for two years if there's no imminent threat. And then it sort of fades and then, Oh, you know, Teal sees is pretty quiet in the wall brand again. Boom. They come back another two, three, four cut blocks, five hectare blocks. And they just nibble away and then back off and leave and then play the long game. And they wait us out and it's fairly effective and it's scary that it's so effective. So my concern isn't Fairy Creek and like the movement right now. Um, it's 
like the health and wellness of the Pachida Didida community. And like, so they feel in a strong position where they don't need to even be making ultimatum decisions about what to do with their land base. They have the free prior and informed consent to make full decision decisions about their territory and not have to be backed into a corner under financial duress by the province or Teal Jones. They can just make good economic decisions for themselves and like feel healthy and empowered to do that. Um, so that in 10 years, like Ferry Creek is not, not even a, not even a conversation, you know, it's like, of course, of course we're not logging that. Like, why would we? Um, and that might like, it's very possible that political dynamics change and all these deferrals fade out. I don't think so, but I'm not willing to let my guard down. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to take that risk. And so these deferrals might go defunct to say if some crazy political stuff happens. The BC liberals get in, they build a campaign on, on, on how forestry feeds their families and their working class corporate, <laughs> uh, sector politicians and, and, uh, and they pull the deferrals and they throw out the technical advisory panel, uh, old growth strategic review stuff, like what happened in the nineties, right? There's already been an old growth strategic review that happened like 30 years ago, but more than 30 years ago that was just like buried. Right. And it feels really pertinent and really live right now for us because it's the center point of a lot of the political conversations, but like that could get buried. That could get buried again. It's happened. It'll happen again. And so I'm not waiting around to find out, um, in that sense, I'm sort of just like trying to do the work and be patient with a, with a longer term game. Um, or I'd like to think I am anyways. I don't know. Probably not. Hmm. It's funny because I've heard <clears throat> so many people talk about the deferrals, like it's a giant win. No, it's a, it's a temporary pump the brakes, right? That's all it is. But the government has done an excellent job making it the ends and not the means. Hmm. It is the means. And we haven't even started the conversation about the ends. So at this point in our conversation, it started raining pretty hard. You know, one of those classic spring rains that starts small and escalates really quickly. So we actually had to put things on hold and find shelter under a little awning. And I thought this would be a good place to put in a little break here. In case you couldn't tell from listening or watching, this whole Nerdy About Nature project takes a ton of work, research, time, and energy, and I'm trying really hard to keep it ad-free as much as possible. But the reality is, is that I just can't keep creating all this stuff in the manner that I am right now. You know, I can't pay my rent with likes and shares. So if you're enjoying this podcast and all the fun videos you see all over social media, then I would really appreciate your consideration in becoming a Patreon supporter for as little as $1 a month to help me keep creating all this fun content to help create a better world for tomorrow. Just some food for thought, but sounds like the rain's letting up, so let's get back into it with Mark. Anyway, a brief little reset. Che um, cheers, nerdy about nature. Yeah, cheers, I'm bud. feeling a little Good nerdy chat. myself. Yeah, just a bit nerdier, yeah? <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about the old growth deferrals. How are they different from anything that's happened in the past? How are they the same? What are kind of like the pros and cons of everything that we're kind of getting into right now as far as like old growth quote-unquote protection goes? as the government likes to greenwash us saying. <clears throat> well, the, the first rule of government club is that uh, we don't talk about government club. Uh, and what I mean by that is that they put out communications into the world and what they've said is gospel, right? Um, 
but when you start dissect what it is they're actually doing, you begin to realize that you have more questions than answers in front of you. But their media communications and the way that they talk about how they're implementing policies is a lot of very convoluted, uh, complex policy level issues that have been distilled into really uh, almost useless communications in many, in many respects. So something like deferrals, they've gone ahead and just done this neat little semantic maneuver where they've said that deferrals are protection. Um, they are not. Uh, deferral has nothing to do with protection at all. Um, it's a, a, a Part 14 Forest Act deferral is just a mechanism by way the minister can um, prevent new applications of permits going in for logging roads or, or cut blocks into an area or put on ice existing permits that a licensee might have. Um, and so say there's a, a permit to, to uh, build a new road and a cut block into a watershed, uh, that minister can do a, a, a part 14, part 13, part 14, it's either part 13 or 14, um, one of the two in the forest act, um, and put on ice those permits for two years and an extension to four before they need to formally compensate the licensee for lost revenue because of the intervention on a permit that they legally acquired. Um, and so what they've been doing is kind of switching the narrative to make it seem like deferrals are the ends, the end game, the conclusion of old growth work um, on the government side of things. But what they actually are is just a pause button. That's it. They're just a temporary pause button in order to make a safe space so that communities can have a dialogue about what we'd like to see uh, happen in the forest. Um, and it's a it's a it's a very clever little turn of policy semantics where they've taken what should be the means to a different ends, i.e., like land going back into the hands of indigenous people and or some kind of conservation outcome or some sort of change in the annual album cut or you know different rotation whatever policy level outcome that's an actual real ends for that land base or for that forest um, and replace that with this interim measure. So they've kind of just said, oh yeah, deferrals, like we're going to do deferrals, but we can't do deferrals until we consult with all nations. And if they don't have complete consensus within the community and all overlapping territories, then we can't do deferrals. But you know what they can keep doing without consensus and including overlapping territories is they can keep logging those watersheds without consent, mm -hmm. without cultivating any consultation with a lot of the nations there. So it's the deferral isn't the point of it isn't actually to have or allow those conversations to take place. It's basically to just like put the pause button on it, um, extend it a little bit further to the next like election cycle and basically kick it off their plate. Could be. I don't know. I mean, once you have something, once you have a formal deferral in place, <clears throat> um, it's pretty hard to undo that you know it would be pretty crazy to see logging happening in areas that have a formal deferral in place historically in bc a lot of the areas um, that were transitioned into areas that weren't going to be logged in the great bear rainforest were transitioned through deferrals a deferrals process um i think maybe a, a couple might have been flipped back into the timber harvesting land based after that process but not many and that's a huge that's like half the coast really so that's a huge landscape to compare to now there's only like seven or nine actual real deferrals that exist and people tend to talk about deferrals in a bunch of different ways the government says deferrals is one thing we talk about deferrals as another thing 
we talk about proposed deferral areas like they're deferral areas, but they are not formal Forest Act deferrals until the minister has said this map of this area, this is now in a deferral and now a temporary halt to permitting. For and two years. For two years will happen. But there's a, a an important <coughs> distinction I want to make that I keep hearing in the, and I don't know that the media fully appreciates this yet, but there was the, the technical advisory panel that basically did the analysis and the mapping to designate where they felt deferrals should just immediately out the gates be applied all over BC. And that was the technical advisory panel um, that fed out of the old growth strategic review process. And they proposed uh, deferral areas that were at high risk of biodiversity loss all over BC. Um, Those deferrals have never been applied. They don't exist yet. They're only proposed areas that the technical, the scientific advisory panel recommended. Mm -hmm. And only a handful of places, very few of which actually are particularly, um, like, if you did a priority sequencing around, like, what is that immediate biodiversity loss risk, they probably wouldn't be those spots where the current deferrals are. The current deferrals are there because they're politically convenient, and they th- and they and I think they made a political calculation to be like, ooh, these are the ones that are going to make us look like we're moving the dial on this thing. And certainly, we welcome those deferrals. It's a good thing, but it is like vastly short of where we need to be at. And it's not the ends, right? The ends is actually a different conversation, a full regime change of forestry in BC. And we're nowhere near that right now. Um, If anything, the deferrals kind of work of the province I've seen has kind of been a... It's good, and there are people in the ministry that are working, um, you know, that, that I will tip my hat to. But fundamentally, to the sector, it was like a smoke them if you got them, boys, signal. Because as soon as they gave an indication that they might be doing some deferrals around BC, the logging companies who have better data sets than the province and the public do, they know exactly where their best timber is. They just gunned it. And they, it was a race against the clock. It was a race to the bottom. And the province triggered that race. They started it. The clock, you know, began when they announced the old growth strategic review and the word deferral emerged in the public consciousness. Then all of those companies were like, oh, shit, it's go time. We need to get our old growth, like, down and into the market before this government manages to actually, like, flip this over and begin a consultation process with First Nations. And so the more that the province fumbles the ball on doing meaningful consultation and consent building with nations, the more time that buys the companies to actually create scenarios where they can log more old growth. Yeah. And I think from the initial announcement, it was like a solid nine to 10 months before anything was acted. Yeah. Yeah. That last or two Septembers ago. Yeah. So I've, I've kind of, I actually kind of think deferral, like focusing on deferrals is a bit of a, not a red herring. It's real in terms of the existing tools that, that are alive and possible within uh, legislation right now. We need them as a tool. Um, but I don't want to lose sight of the star of the North star, you know, on like these interim measures because we're so used to not having gains. We're so used to just like loss after loss after loss, right? And all of our losses are permanent and our wins are only ever temporary. And deferrals are a great example of that where we're like, okay, is it a win? Yeah. Is it for long? No. 
and is it what we need? No. Like, you basically just need to take a win and then level it up and then take a win and level it up again and again and again. And if you let off the gas for a second, you lose all those gains immediately, right? And so it's a, it's a sketchy kind of thing to orient off of, I think, in terms of how we're thinking about our relationships with land bases and old growth and what forest economies should be kind of transitioning to. Um, and I'd, I'd prefer to keep, keep our eye on the, on the prize and keep our eye on the goal, the long-term sort of like arc of where it's at, as opposed to getting muddled in the short-term deferral kind mm-hmm. of like conversations. And in your mind, what is that kind of long-term goal? What is the prize? <clears throat> Land back. Want to elaborate on what that means? (laughs) I think indigenous people uh, who have had their territories exploited by the resource sector and the provincial government and the federal government um, for the last 150, 400 years um, in different places um, deserve to heal in ways that they see fit and have uh, the free prior and informed consent for uh, any activities happening in their territory um, immediately. That's, that's, that's the long game, but it's also the near game. Like I'm not, we, we need that now. <laughs> uh, there's no like quaint, uh, long drawn out reconciliation process. Like the BC government decided to kill reconciliation when they sent militarized RCMP into its own territory and a great many other violent exertions of this so-called colony of British Columbia. And like, unless they're talking on the public stage and talking about what they're going to actually be doing, then the issue of decolonization is a, g- a great way for them to be like, Oh, we can't say that. Cause that would be very colonist of us. Totally. They use it as yeah. smoke and mirrors. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Quite poorly. I'll add too. you know, like, have you noticed that politicians will say, uh, how do they say it? They say colonialist. As opposed to colonist? Yeah, or colonial. And yeah. I've never quite figured that out. I'm like, oh, are you... I feel like it's because it's you... one of those words that they don't <laughs> feel comfortable expressing, so they're like, Col- colonialism. <laughs> they have to just grind it out of their teeth Because they something. know that they're like the face of it. Still yeah. operating. Col- like colonialist. Yeah. yeah. Like even in a, there was an article that came out the other day where Katrine Conroy t- referred to uh, if they applied deferrals immediately, that that would be kind of colonialist of them. And I was like, what is colonialist? Mm-hmm. Like... What are you talking about? You're the province of Britain. You are the colony. Like you literally represent like colonization. And it's not, it's not like a, it's like a, is it a noun? Is it an adjective? Like, what are you trying to do with, with this word colonialist? Like, well, like talking about a free and prior consent, like you had talked about earlier before, I think we were recording, like, that's an interesting one because like, like you're talking about now, like they need free prior informed consent in order to enact the deferrals, but they don't need it to continue logging as they've always done. Yet they're saying that if they don't get the consent for the deferrals, then that would be colonialist. Yeah. It's a double standard. Right. We're allowed to colonize violently in this manner, but not when it comes to conservation outcomes. So that would be colonialist. How does the free prior and informed consent dictate kind of how things are managed now? Because I know that they're like Western force. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Western Forest Products. I saw an ad for them that they were working in partnership with uh, some nation. I forget who, but it was like, are, how equal is that partnership? Are you just like paying them 
two percent of what you make off of it and then like using their logo and your branding and then your greenwashing and saying all this like what what is the metric for free prior informed consent great question i don't know <clears throat> yeah i don't know um how do you see that being an issue today with just as things evolve into a new era, like in the way things kind of have been the past couple of decades, um, working as, as like relationships between these publicly traded logging companies and indigenous nations kind of move forward. How has that, how has that balance been in the past? <clears throat> the entire spectrum. I mean, it's, it's, it's been the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, rarely the good. Uh, and I think that, there's a a danger in talking about these kinds of things and applying kind of like a like a pan indigenous uh framework to what is a very diverse uh issue and part of the world and um also you know there's different nations are at different places in terms of revitalizing or waking up hereditary governance protocols and or hybridizing banned and hereditary governance or or separating band like there's just nations and communities are in so many different places that what something like free prior and informed consent in one community might be will look totally different than what it would look like in a different community based on how those communities define what they want and need um so there's no there's no set rules uh, is, is kind of what I think. Um, it's pretty r- rare that you see um, really fulsome like high consent based relationship building. Interestingly, the bigger corporations can kind of afford to do certain types of consultation that like smaller or medium sized companies kind of can't. Also, I think it's kind of crazy that corporations would be doing consultation directly. Like who, who does the consulting? What is consent? Who are the relevant parties? The representatives. Who are the representatives either from community or like, why, why is it that like some corporate executive, somebody from some big corporation gets to do consultation on a land base where there might be a treaty in place around like, you know, uh, multi-generational relationships between a government. But then all of a sudden you have this third party corporation that is like, come into the come into the scene and is like engaged in what could have been or should have been government process with another nation like a nation to nation conversation that's also representing a fluctuating group of people like board members get voted in and out people sell their shares that person could lose their job next year so there's like what kind of relationship are you building between this like entity that's represented by different people throughout different periods of time versus the nation like you're you know you're part of that nation Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah it's a big it's a big one um but I think, I mean, it's interesting in a sense that there's a local DRIPA legislation, like the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People Act, uh, signed through through legislature. I was there in legislature when that act was, was uh, ascended or whatever they call it, um, which was a pretty significant moment. You know, like it's important to like name that that was like a huge uh, page turner for for this part of the world and when was that oh geez two years uh three years ago now yeah um and 
but like within the last three years, we've seen heavy RCMP, CSERG, like militarized RCMP invasions of indigenous territories. We've seen the Site C Dam get like pushed through against the inherent and treaty rights. Blueberry River profit, like <clears throat> Douglas Treaty has been violated time and time again by governments. Like the Wet'suwet'en have a, a highly organized, like centralized, like community of all the clans. The office of the Wet'suwet'en has been like fighting for their Yenta forever. They've got legal precedents on their side. Like, and yet we still see John Horgan stand up and be like, mm, this isn't the first time and not the last that I'm going to disappoint indigenous people. It's like, no, dude, you're not disappointing indigenous people. You're violating human rights. That's a difference. You know, you don't just, you're not just disappointing people. You're destroying their territory. Absolutely. You're like exerting really, really fucked up violence against women and children communities elders aunties uncles and grandparents like standing in their inherent rights on their own territory that was never ceded ever you know what i mean like that level of cognitive dissonance or just chosen violence will i can i like will never comprehend that and that's why i have a really hard time working with politicians that can somehow hold the fact that they might be a nice person but that they are actively participating in like very genocidal like exertions of violence against people standing in their inherent rights. Like, so like a cool drippa sweet, you know, like do the photo op and everything. And like, that's pretty precedent setting in this country. Sure. It is. <laughs> but what's the good of it? If it's but not what's active, the good of it, if it yeah. doesn't actually translate yeah. to material differences for people. Well, and I feel like that's where they, they use it for like, yeah, photo op. And when it's convenient to them to like, not have to directly answer a, a touchy subject or situation or just kind of like avoid it altogether. Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to like actually enacting it, <clears throat> it involves changing a lot of the fabric of the society that like the, the way that things work. It's like when there's civil civil disobedience, you send in the RCMP to like regulate, but all of a sudden it means something different when now that we've addressed the DRIPA and we've like honored or written that in to like what we should be doing, as soon as you're not acting on it, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like, I think it's, it's, I think it's white supremacy. It's, yeah. It's white supremacy and the white country and it's white economy. And if, you hmm. know, you're... Hmm. Uh, other culture that was here prior um, can work with that. We're cool. We can do DRIPA. But if you aren't cool with the economy that we've created for this Western Eurocentric like version of what it means to be on a land base, mm -hmm. then like you're just stopping national infrastructure projects. You're just right. in the way. Like you're actually against our project, like uh, the, like the colonial project. Well, I feel like it's that same thing as colonialist colonialismist. <laughs> it's sure. it's like. I feel like the people who are in those positions have gotten there through just the normal kind of ranks that you go through, through politics. And all of a sudden they're in a position where they're like, whoa, we're not prepared to talk about this. Mm -mm. We're completely uneducated, nor are we willing to get educated. So it's like, there's mm. just, yeah, it's, they're being caught in a really awkward, uncomfortable place. And instead of like bucking up and doing the work and having difficult conversations and like recognizing that like in order to make that change you're going to make a lot of the people who you made happy getting to where you are upset is is difficult right which isn't politically possible in our system right because right. right. then four years blows by and we're like okay we're not getting back into office right. and then it's all for naught mm. right so these like quick 
quick political rotations are kind of like our forestry rotations. Yeah. They're not long enough <laughs> in many respects, <laughs> right? You can't actually get much done in, an, in a political ecosystem if you're just like, oh, turn it over. Oh, turn it over. Oh, oh, oh you know, we should really just oh, change it up. You know, like nothing actually grows. Yeah. You can't sequester carbon in political systems more than 30 to 40 years old. <laughs> right. Just to run with the metaphor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's a great metaphor actually i love that and a lot of like i hear from a lot of communities that they're pretty frustrated with the band council structures they might be working mm -hmm. with because their political turnover rate is so quick too something like two years two years think about what you can get done in two years in a community and then you're out again you know or like maybe you get back in but it's 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 a trap like it's kind of a intense trap and the same is true for for political structures and political rotations federally provincially um pivoting back to trees and stuff though trees and stuff yeah, yeah. when we were talking before we were recording you were telling me that you had found the 10th biggest tree in canada yeah <clears throat> just stumbled upon it how do um how do big tree protection regulations get influenced by industry and then how does that like dictate where logging occurs before the province and even announced the first round of uh, deferrals back la last September, September 2020, uh, 2020. <clears throat> was it 2020? It was, yeah. It was the first year of COVID. Yeah. Um, before that, do you remember when they announced with the big fireworks and champagne that they were going to protect 53 of the biggest trees? <laughs> I don't recall that announcement. <laughs> it was good. That was a good <laughs> one. We were all like, you know, the drum roll hit, and there's like big announcement coming. Like, okay, cool, it's a big announcement coming. Everybody buckles up for the big announcement, <laughs> and they're like, "Fuck, <laughs> it's so fifty-three, fifty-three trees, it's the biggest trees, the biggest trees." Number. Well, they just yeah, I don't know why they picked fifty-three, but whatever. Because they knew there were if they had just brought it up by one more inch, it would have been four hundred. Right? Yeah, I don't know, <laughs> but but whatever, it doesn't matter. The fifty-three trees was just kind of like a cherry on top of what they were actually announcing. To be fair, which was the special tree uh, regulations, right? Um, and that there were going to be um, thresholds for diameter at breast height. Uh, sizes for most of the major tree species um, in BC uh, and saying that like if you found a tree over said specific height size whatever then it was like worthy of protection as well as the surrounding area yeah um, uh, uh, a circular hectare around a tree um, I forget what what the length of that circular hectare is in terms of the radius but um, a hectare around a big tree based on a minimum size so if a, if a tree's diameter um, of the trunk was at x minimum um, then any size above that is just automatically protected um, what it didn't do was figure out who owns the data for where those trees are and who gets to know about them so there's a little bit of a don't ask don't tell and a continued trust of uh, professionals in the field many of whom are awesome many of whom are questionable um so or or fallers frankly like or whoever's doing the timber cruising perhaps of a block we are basically kind of saying okay if a timber cruiser is is cruising a block and they're you know you know tr trying to figure out the value of the trees or how many how many 
um, of, of, of the of balsam relative to hemlock relative to cedar is in a block or whatever they're cruising through. And they're like, Oh, that's a pretty big balsam tree. Like I'll do a DBH measurement on that. And they take that measurement and they're like, Oh, this meets the minimum threshold for the special tree regulation. And that professional needs to know the law. They need to know what those are, or at least have the data available to figure it out, measure that tree. And then they're like, okay, automatically now in my timber cruising, how I report back and this block will get laid out. Um, it will require that at this balsam tree, we'll have a minimum one hectare circumference around it and we'll just be automatically protected and we'll log everything else around it. Um, now those minimum thresholds, those DBH measurements, <clears throat> um, were negotiated with the sector with, with, with logging companies for something that was amenable and acceptable to them. Uh, and so of course, a lot of them were much too large, right? They didn't want to give up more trees, um, in the process of the creation of the special tree regulation. And so they were only willing to sign off and accept, you know, uh, minimum requirements that were large enough where they were like, okay, this actually doesn't take that big of a bite out of our timber harvesting, out of our profit margins, essentially. So like, cool. Yeah, we can, we can abide by this new, new reg. Um, and so for some of the trees, they're, they're pretty good size, like diameters. And for some of them, they're way too big. And there are monstrous, ancient, incredible, like trees that should never even hear a chainsaw in their life. Um, that are getting logged every single day in the province of BC. Um, you know, tr trees that you could park a Volkswagen bug on the stump of are still getting logged and don't meet the minimum requirements for the special tree regulation. So it falls short essentially right. of what we need. Well, it's like that, uh, was it last year where that big tree went viral? The Sika spruce trump yeah. stump on the back of that truck? That yeah, it tree wasn't even close. Right. Like it was many feet off of the minimum right. requirement. People were blown away because it was like, oh my God, a tree <laughs> existed where just one chunk of it fit edge to edge, if not over overflowing it on a big semi truck like that. Yeah. But that wasn't even close no no <laughs> it's incredible yeah incredibly yeah. depressing really yeah yeah and it's so hard right like because this is this is the challenge of of like normative environmental advocacy groups is like oh they did a cool thing but they did a cool thing so poorly that it's is it even cool you know like it's kind of like the in blunt terms so we're like oh god it's kind of embarrassing. You're like, why, why did you so, why did you try so hard to, to not quite make it across the finish line? You know, like just, just do the job, like right. just do it good. You were for so once. close. You were so close. Like, please. And it's, it's mostly all self-regulation too. Right. So it's like that timber cruiser who went out and found that big balsam in the story that you told this fable. Who's to say he even reported it? Great question. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so this is why I like to work with folks that gets their boots on the ground and they get the heck out into the woods and don't hang out at just like the policy level tables or in like urban centers or whatever. Like we hit the forest and we go find those um, sensitive karst ecosystems and we do our own timber cruising. We do like sort of like, uh, I don't even know what to call it, like a decolonial ecosystem based timber cruising, you know, in our own way where we're like, oh, there's a bunch of culturally modified trees in this block. Like they're not flagged. Hmm. 
I wonder if they had an ARC survey done here. Hmm. You know, you go make some phone calls, you check in with the elders in the community, maybe the band council, and you're like, yo, did you guys get a referral for this? Like, has an ARC survey been done up this valley? Because it certainly looks like there's a bunch of, like, heritage features that might be significant to your communities, like cultural cultural heritage that you might want to have checked out. Um, and we report that, right? And then, oh, yeah, mm, it turns out they didn't do an ARC survey, and it's a don't ask, don't tell scenario in the woods. So we try to beat them to the punch, get out there, find those karst cave systems to be like, mm, you should probably have a hydrologist or a geologist come and assess whether there's a karst risk or whether the hydrology is going to get messed up by some logging in this area or whatever, and kind of like hold them to account on that. Um, and just do the work. Like we don't need to beak off at politicians all the time. Like put your boots on, let's go to the woods. Like let's do it ourselves. Um, and we've had a fair amount of success doing that for finding bear dens and having bear dens like kind of listed and registered so that when a timber cruiser or a, a block layout person finally starts to do the planning, there's a data point in the map because half the time these people are doing block layout. They've not been on the block. Really? Totally. It's just all Google Maps, like drawn no, lines? No, no, no. It's based on data sets and, right. you know, well, all sorts of other information. But, like, sure. if there's no data point, there's then it doesn't exist. And so we want to put points on maps to be like, no, no, there's a bear den here. There's a culturally modified tree grove here. There's, like, a sensitive karst hydrology feature creek here, but it's not above ground, so you can't see it. So you might actually need to do a LIDAR scan and maybe give this thing a buffer, even though you can't see it to your naked eye. It's actually just below the surface or something. Um, as far as, like, penalties go for, like, breaking any of those regulations, like, I can't tell you how many cut blocks I've seen where there's not necessarily riparian tape that's been cut down i feel like i've seen photos from you where there's like riparian tape hanging on old snags so it's like if so there's like you know you're supposed to leave a buffer around a waterway especially if it's a salmon bearing stream but more for just hydrological purposes so that that stream has enough drainage and doesn't get all silted up and carry that down further downstream if someone logs that anyway like what kind of repercussions are there oh god you know nothing standardized i find like there's probably like six compliance and enforcement officers between Campbell River and Bellacoola. Wow. And the entire system is set up to be complaints driven. So they actually can't respond to something unless someone's complained about it. And so someone else has to go there, see it. It used to be this way. It might have changed in the last like couple right. years. But anytime I talk to compliance enforcement officers, they're like, mm, yeah, like we hear you, but you need to file. Can you please just file the complaint? Because I actually can't go and even get in my truck until I have a formal complaint filed with like pictures and a lat long and like a grievance and association with a certain act that it's been violated or whatever. Or like maybe it's a class for stream and so you need to you like you the public citizen that doesn't know anything about forestry <laughs> policy like you need to tell me which part of which subsection of what stream classification has been violated and why it's not one tree length or whatever um, and so all of the onus is on the public in that sense and even then you have to then go and file the whole thing and then even then they have to respond to it in sequenced order so maybe there's like a hundred complaints prior to the one that you just filed, but even, but yours might be way more severe. It might be like Carol's choked that her neighbor logged the nice willow that she liked in her yard and it was hanging over the fence or whatever. That compliance person's got to actually do that one before they get to the one where a salmon, you know, buffer has been logged through or something. Right. Um, and so it's just mired, right? It's mired with all this like bureaucratic fuckery and, 
it's super disempowering for any member of the public to feel like they can actually have accountability with whatever the rules or regulations around riparian buffers, whatever it might be, even is. And I've found this where I've gone through entire complaints processes. I've gone through entire forest practices board complaints. I've done everything directly with the licensee, with the province, with the regional district office, with the nation. Like I've gone through everything. And like it took up probably a year of my life or more. And like all said and done, God, it might have been like a equivalent to like a like a like a part time, like a two day a week kind of job and no change in outcome at the end. Like zero. I did everything I was supposed to do. And I did it because I was like paid to do the work. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go through the gauntlet of how a member of the public might f properly follow each process and do everything by the book as I'm supposed to, if I have a grievance and if I feel that some part of the forest act has been violated or whatever. And I did that. And I spent like over a year being barred public information access rights from Lemaire Lake Logging, a company in the North Island. This is in East Creek over near the Class Quiche. And they, so uh, the site plans need to be made available to any member of the public if you just walk into a forestry office right now. If we walked into the closest Western office and said, hey, we want to see the site plans for this, for the Klanawa or something, some spot, um, they need legally to be able to be like, boom, here they are. If it's like nine to five, Monday to Friday or whatever, some reasonable professional times but i was denied access to that for nine months while they were logging and i was like that's crazy it's not even really that i like necessarily need these documents exactly i'm i'm actually more concerned about the valley itself and i wanted them to kind of like check up on things or be like a good citizen you know and like participate in the forest forestry where um, and couldn't even do that. So eventually I filed the complaint with compliance and enforcement and they were like, yeah, like we'll check up on it, but like, you know, we'll see or whatever. And I think like some guy went and looked at it and like checked out the bridges or something and we're like, well, the bridges look good. And I was like, what do the bridges have anything to do with it? You know? Like, <laughs> and, uh, and they were like, well, maybe you should go to the forest practices board. And I was like, okay, I'll just, I'll carry on as recommended by the regulators and went to the forest practices board and they were like, okay, we'll take it on. And they did a complete audit and a full investigation. And we helicoptered in with the owner, the CEO of the company, my sweaty leg pressed against his sweaty leg in the helicopter, very uncomfortable flight. <laughs> uh, and we went into some of the worst clear cuts on the Island in East Creek. And we walked around and did the whole thing, song and dance. And, you know, he sort of swooned and did his nice like PR kind of like stuff with the forest practices board folks. And, because the policies and regulations are so bottom of the bucket, they weren't breaking any laws. Uh, they said they didn't do a good job in the report. And then they said that they broke the law, not by decimating the last ancient old growth in East Creek, but they broke the law because they didn't give me access to public information documents. That was the law broken. That was, that was the law broken. Which I still haven't seen, by the way. I still don't have access to those site plans. Oh, so even though I they never were, got you, them, even though even though the Forest Practices Board did the report, filed it, and everything, the only difference that I can tell in the world that of anything that changed at all was that Lemaire Lake Logging uh, made a website <laughs> that said what? It <laughs> said we're Lemaire Lake Logging and we're sustainable and everything's cool. Oh yeah, it's sustainable, like, right? Because yeah, yeah, BC is yeah. the most sustainable logging in the world, apparently. Oh no, you for sure, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um but 
the the moral of that story for me was like the whole system is designed to ostracize a member of the public and make them feel stupid and make them feel like they don't know what they're talking about. And if you don't speak in the vernacular and the language right. of this niche, like forced sector kind of language, then like, therefore your opinions and thoughts aren't valid. Right. And you don't even make it past the starting point into any of those public participation, like processes at all, you know? And I was paid to do all that work too. Remember, like, could you imagine being like just some guy who cared about the woods? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. there's no way. There's no way. Well, and it's wild too, because in order to go through the motions of getting all that vernacular and learning how to speak that speak, you end up kind of getting brainwashed, I feel like, by the system. So it's like you only see it one way. It's like the silver culture perspective of like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. they did this. This was the method used. They're going to replant and it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Come back 60, 70 years. It's going to be a big forest. Let me tell you what. It's like, okay, it's a forest. No one's denying that, but it's not the same forest and it's not even comparable. No, it isn't. Tree farms are plantations. They're They're farms. They're different than forests. Mm -hmm. They're different than what like glaciation and evolution created. Mm -hmm. Succession. And indigenous stewardship over a millennia. They're just, they're just not it. (laughs) Um, So that, that indigenous stewardship of the forests, um, there's been some recent stuff coming out about that. I think out of Nuchatla territory, is it? really cool powerful stuff that kind of reframes what a forest is to us in our like you know again western defined vision of like a wild place with no human interaction yeah we think of like biodiversity as a thing again through this like darwinian approach that like has Mm. come to be through things you know competing and not competing with each other and for succession blah, blah 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 but this new research shows some pretty interesting stuff yeah yeah and of course you know Western science's new research is a lot of indigenous knowledge holders, old news. Right. It's um, just white people's way of confirming what indigenous people have already known. Yeah. It's, it's, it's our way of them being like, see, we told you so. <laughs> um, and that's great. It's fine. You know, we all need to arrive at our <laughs> senses of things in the ways that we have to or can. Um, and more and more those ways of knowing are converging in really exciting ways. Right. There's a lot of, a lot of cool ways of inquiry that, that Western science perspectives brings to understanding the world around us. And so when we can braid those, those ontologies and those, uh, ways of knowing, well, um, that's the, that's the good, that's the good recipe. That's the good work that I think we're trying to do. And certainly this recent work with, um, indigenous forest gardens as they're sort of colloquially colloquially called um are a great example of that and so i was taught about indigenous forest gardens um by many elders in a lot of different communities um by different names you know just be like oh yeah that's where that's where the cherries are or these are the crabapple grounds and you know, this is where the, where the bears tend to habituate in crabapple grounds. And then here's where we gather our crabapples or whatnot in, in certain spots. And they're typically conveniently located near village sites or areas that would be traversed often or frequently or actively cultivated in different ways. Um, but more recently, um, the, um, historical ecologist um, who works out of SFU. She's a professor over there named Chelsea Armstrong. Um, She lives up in Eskina and she did a bunch of really amazing work with um, 
with Gitsan folks in in the Skeena, um, uh, with a, a focus on hazelnuts and um, how these groves of hazelnuts and a great many other um, food plant species and stuff all concentrated and were essentially like cultivated indigenous orchards is what they were and are um, and um, how they orient and were actively designed in the landscape by indigenous people in relation to other types of food systems and sacred places so they're often near estuaries or salmon bearing uh, rivers and streams or village sites and stuff i mean a quick way to talk about it is to say it's like the work done prior to permaculture it's essentially like permaculture kind of poached a lot of their conceptual thinking from the way that indigenous people um cultivated and worked with natural systems rather than the way western european uh thinking cultivated power over natural systems and created like modern agriculture um and this is all over from south america through uh, through north and all the turtle island um and so her work is is pretty exciting because this this emergent field of ethnobotany or ethnoecology or what she calls historical ecology, kind of a mix of archaeological analysis and then ethnobotanical work, um, where she's figured out a rubric where she can juxtapose what a, a sort of a more wild distribution of plant species might be um, without so much um, active human participation in their distribution relative to what... Um, a lot of hands and a lot of active human participation in a certain distribution of certain types of food food species. So if you're seeing a, a salmon-bearing river estuary near to a midden site that has uh, crabapple orchards adjacent and then um, some some rice root or some chocolate lily in the estuary mixed with clover and then oh turns out there's some cedar culture modified trees a little bit further back in the forest cover um all within a tight concentration you're like oh that's just like not an accident you know that this like perfect combination of delicious foods <laughs> all exists right there you're talking about an indigenous homestead you're talking about permaculture you're talking about a traditional food system that exists and is still alive and well on the land base now um and so we got to do some of this work last year on on uh on nooka island um and it was a goddamn privilege i tell you it was some of the coolest field work i've ever done because it fundamentally changed the way that i look at a forest right my kind of like eco bro tree hugger thinking that's defined how the lens of which I look at a forest landscape, my eyes immediately go to dark forest, dark and big, right? So my, my gaze is like up high at the hillside and like where groves exist and where there's like spires or spike tops and cedars poking out high. And I'm like, Ooh, that looks like a big tree up there. You know, I want to go check that out or whatever. But after learning from Chelsea and some of the Nechatlet community members, they've trained their eye to look for light colored like that the difference between deciduous and conifers right like those light colored branches of 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 trees that lose their leaves every year are often what those edible plants are and so my gaze switched from looking at big dark green to small light green in the spring especially when that new growth comes out and yeah when it's really poppy green yeah from and the, from it's easier from the water too right because you can get you can get back off of the forest cover and um and then all of a sudden you're like ooh there like 
that's a bunch of crab apple or mm, there's nine bark or um ironwood or whatever and um devil's club like twinberry plum species you name it right there's so much there even even salal like groves that are like hmm you know this isn't just a random salal grove it actually kind of has a different vibe to it and you feel it after a while and you see it a little bit differently and once you learn to see ecosystems you can't unlearn that right and so that's what i love about thinking about indigenous forest garden work is like right obviously these are like actively cultivated forest ecosystems and the biodiversity flows directly from that cultivation rather than being in contradiction to biodiversity. It's a, a, a symbiotic kind of um, reproduction of, of biodiverse and sort of sustainable uh, food systems on a land base. And it's, it's really beautiful. And I, you know, I think the next kind of step in the work i would imagine were, would be for a lot of those communities to start going back out and like breathing life back into those systems that have been sleeping for for recent colonial history you know um and and get them get them making crab apples again get them right well it's a similar thing with oak meadows and stuff yeah yeah camas camas mm-hmm. meadows mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah, I mean, because like those ecosystems are incredibly rare now because of development. I think I want it's less than five percent of their original extent in BC is, is remaining. Probably, yeah, or um, less. Yeah, and most of that is because of development, but it's also because of like stagnation. Like as soon as you stop cultivating and stop managing these lands, like conifers are going to invade and take over because they're much better at quote unquote competing um, than all these. Quercus gariana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. So like, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing when you, when you see like when people were removed from these landscapes by the colonization powers that be, um, these ecosystems started changing and evolving more rapidly than had they just continued to manage them. Because again, humans are just a bunch of wild animals. We're active parts of these forest ecosystems. Like to think that we're separate from it is such a, I don't know, Western mode of thinking to identify that like nature is everything outside of us and we are human, everything like within our walls that it's all built from stuff from nature. That's humanity and anything outside of it is nature. That's wild. That's crazy. That's like the tameable or the, the, the thing that needs to be conquered. Um, and I think it's funny when we talk about biodiversity and like kind of the more recent obsession with it from like, again, a Western perspective is like, we got to save biodiversity. I think subconsciously it's because wherever like quote unquote white people and quote unquote Western civilization has been in the past, we've typically eradicated biodiversity because we've tried to make monocultures of things. We've, we've, you know, burned forest, cut it down and created, like, uh, created, agricultural land out of it like we've tried or tree farm plantations, or tree farm plantations like yeah. historically i think like we're all very aware of the fact that like that's just like what humans have kind of done in the name of progress throughout history so it's like how can we how can we not do that anymore mm. i mean I'd, I'd i'd offer you a, a a bit of a vernacular shift like there's nothing inherently evil about humans per se sure yeah. i mean like i meant like the western society right, that yeah. like has yeah. th- that we live in that has like taught us that like it's good because we spread from europe and then came over mm. across the pacific right. or the atlantic and have yeah. done all this like yeah. that's kind of like the lens that like we're taught to think in and when you look back on that like i think you don't have to break it down to realize that what was happening was like just eradication and destruction of like this natural world that has that has existed with the aid and careful management of these indigenous people to like one that is just a blanket 
you know, industrial revolution, agricultural revolution. Mm -hmm. This is how we sustain life. This is how we feed families and produce the most food in this like very, again, very, it's a very tangible metrics driven way of, of like quantifying something. I I think it's about like commodification, right? The mentality around commodification, commodifying bad things, commodifying good things, just like commodifying. Which is ultimately like capitalism trying to make a buck up everything. Yeah. If I've grown this apple, even though that apple is going to grow naturally fat, if I grew this apple on my land that I own and I can sell it for a profit, then I'm right. getting one step closer to the American dream. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the interesting conversations that is <clears throat> kind of springboarding from the indigenous forest garden conversation that I'm rolling over in my head a little bit is like, so you know, here, here we are kind of like having our, our normative minds blown that indigenous people were cultivating the <laughs> land and you're like, okay, that's actually not that mind blowing of a concept. Like, of course they were, of course, you know, and of course a great many other things. Right. Um, but that's like part of the, the damage done to the, to the settler psyche and is to, is, is that, that doctrine of discovery, that, that concept of wilderness and that there were no people here not doing Eurocentric kind of things. Or that they were savages, which justified sure, yeah. all where the, where the page turns in an interesting way with indigenous forest gardens and indigenous cultivation of, of even f- fisheries in rivers and things with fish weirs and stuff and little shellfish and, too and shellfish yeah clam gardens and cultivated crops the way that we've been groomed to think that uh land and land ownership in western terms is rooted off a john lockean concept of labor land theory um is actually yet again further validating a Western European perspective around what it means to have a relationship with the land base. Do you know what I mean? So like uh, mixing my labor with the land means ownership or that means the product of my mixed labor and the land is mine to own, commodify, and then gain from. And this is, this is John Locke's kind of concept around how it is that we can own land or have a relationship with land and, and, and begin to participate in an economy. Um, so that's a Western European concept that that is how one might relate to a land based, which is completely colonial in its way. So by us even thinking, Oh wow, how cool is it that there are these cultivated indigenous orchards and, you know, root garden systems like that's So cool. We're only actually giving it validity because it reminds us of cultivation from Europe. You know what I mean? And it's like, Oh, there we are again, just like looping on our own perspectives. And while, you know, no shame there. Like it is cool. And it is like, we need to turn that page. And yet also, you know, what a fascinating (laughs) trap that that we're constantly finding ourselves within where we're only letting indigenous worldviews, cosmologies, ontologies, and like ways of thinking about relationships and being present on a land base and what ownership might be still is in European terms of sovereignty and ownership still Mm. you know even as progressive and as like cool as the concept of indigenous cultivation is Mm -hmm. so that's where i'm like oof it rubs right there the gears crunch again where i'm like oh god (laughs) what do we do with that well i think it just it it takes such a different mindset and it's a really difficult one to break 
from the Western one that we've been trained in, like, like you said, like we've been groomed in. Um, it's just, it's, it's so radically different. And I feel like if we were raised in that way, it would, it would be much easier, but like coming from where we are trying to break the mold and think like that mm. is just so it's difficult. Tough, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the way that our consciousness shift, you know, we think in our language that we were taught, like we don't think in other, you know, it's like, that's just the way that our brain forms thoughts, which is a really interesting concept when you think about that, like developmentally, it's like, if you didn't have language, how would you think? Right. Um, and beyond that, I feel like it requires such a deep connection and understanding of the land. Like in, you know, I guess there, there were like territories and stuff. So there was like kind of ownership, not in like the same Western perspective of like, I own this, and I'm going to pass this on to my kids. And there's like the deed to my house type thing. Um, but there, you know, that connection and understanding that you are part of a landscape and part of an ecosystem is something that like gen is generated over so many generations of being one with the land and on the land. Um, I look at like, you know, like a lot of culturally modified trees. When we think of that, we tend to think of cedar stripping and stuff, but there's a lot of like way markers and stuff like things where like trees have been purposely like bent or tied down to grow in a funky shape. And that like marks the way to the water or the marks the way up a ridge. And again, coming from it from this western perspective we i you know i go out in the woods and i see that and i'm like cool tree yeah it took me a while to be like whoa how'd that tree grow maybe it slumped <laughs> to the side oh but it has this weird bend in it and then now it's like oh my god like right. i'm trying to find a way to like justify it from like the natural way that a tree would grow and like what sort of forces would be bestowed upon it naturally but then it's like hold on like that was human interaction like that was people who, who lived on this land for so long that they knew that was the way to the water and then if they bent this tree in a certain way that in 500 years, it would mark the way to the water still. Like it's when we think about our tree farms only operating on like 67 year rotations. And then we think about the way that a tree would or that indigenous people would mark the way to a certain place by bending trees that grow over thousands of years. It just shows the disconnect we have between like what we're trying to do and what was achieved by, um, you know, so many generations of people like actually living in communion with the land and becoming like part of these ecosystems systems active engage parts of these ecosystems whereas we're still just trying to control it mm -hmm. and not understand any bit of it yeah yeah it's the hubris yeah i had a fun uh field day where um <laughs> we'd been working with a couple arc survey uh, guys that that do cmt surveys for a whole bunch of different nations wonderful folks um and they go out and they do the formal ID of, of CMTs and then they document the grove and the distribution and figure out, you know, when they might have been um, bark pulled and so on and so forth. And, um, and also came other community members that I was working with who were weavers and bark pullers, like indigenous folks, who, you know, women who... Um, mm -hmm. every year in the spring they go out with their family or whomever and uh, they pull bark and then they make stuff out of them as as their um, ancestors would have done for millennia um, it's not that complicated uh, it's a beautiful process um, and the CMT guys with their it's not that complicated but there's a method methodology behind it totally yeah yeah, yeah. not 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 to say it's not uh, complicated but just, or that anybody should just go out and do it you definitely shouldn't do it if you don't know what you're doing totally just little asterisks nice asterisks um, the the interesting part was that based on the simplicity of some of the knowledge that the arc survey guys had and the simplicity of the knowledge that the 
bark pullers and weavers the women had, um, neither one of them had each other's basic wisdoms where they were like, we think it's a CMT. We don't know. Um, and then the art guys were like, oh yeah, you can confirm it for sure. If it has this like healing crest or this bark scar, like right here, like that's how you tell. And like, this is the thing as opposed to like a natural one that was like, maybe done more like this, you know? So there's a different scarring feature and like, boom, boom, boom. And they're like, oh, cool. Like, I see that and I get it. And so now I can go and that like those, like those bark pullers are like, sweet. Now I understand. Now I, I like, I know exactly what an arc survey mind would like look for in this feature. And so I can confirm or not confirm whether it's for sure CMT or not. And it was like, great, cool. <clears throat> and then in the process of doing the survey, we were like, okay, what about this one? You know? And they're like, mm, well, we look for this and that, and there's this thing and, hmm, you know, and they're mulling it about trying to like figure out, and they're like, and one of the guys was like, mm, no, I don't think so. If you look up in the healing lobes here, higher up in where the, the bark pole might have or would have could have been, um, it twists and you can see it twists around the tree. And so if there's a twist in it, it's, it's, it's not a CMT. Like I don't, I don't think so. And so this one's not going to get listed and both the women we were with kind of like looked at each other and chuckled and they were like, what? Like, what are you talking about? What's what's wrong with a twist, you know? And the guys were like, Oh, I don't know. Like if the tree might've just turned or, you know, or like well, maybe the, the scarring event, like caused the growth form to kind of like twist a little bit or something. And they were like, nah, there's a branch right there. Um, and there's a twist because the bark harvester twisted it and was avoiding the branch. Cause you don't want to have a knot in the middle of your bark fiber we do this all the time every spring where if you're pulling and you're like, Oh shit, I'm hitting a knot. Then you go to the other side of the tree and you twist it around and you can move the pole to the other side of the tree and the fibers will roll around the trunk and a talented bark puller can avoid knots in the process of their bark pull. Wow. And, but neither one of the art guys had ever harvested cedar bark. They'd never once pulled that off a tree and they had no idea. And it was this simple knowledge that they had that, and they helped these art guys and they were like, holy shit, you're right. There's a big like branch right there. Like you, it, now that you see it like that, I see how that could have been a maneuver to avoid the branch and to get a cleaner piece of bark. Like, it's like so obvious when you say it, you know? And they're like, yeah, like I was literally doing this like late June last year where we were like, had really naughty trees and we were like, fuck, this grove has a lot of branches in it. Like we got to do some weird maneuvers to get a nice pull. And just by simply putting these two types of different ways of thinking about CMTs and bark harvesting together, they were able to inform each other with a new perspective on what CMTs and modern current cultural practices with cedar bark were. And now those art guys are going back into their surveys that they've done and they were like, yeah, there's all of these trees that we didn't confirm as CMTs that are in an otherwise like big grove of CMTs that it was peculiar that they weren't CMTs and we're now going back into our files and green lighting them now. And so these like young women that basically like laughed at these goofy art guys for not knowing that you like would avoid a branch in a bark pole, something so obvious, um, are now actually daylighting like countless other CMTs that were, they wouldn't have done prior to being informed of that. 
And it was like a really fun day to be like, God, I wish you, I wish these people had talked before, you know, right. like I wish these CMT guys had gone out with weavers and like felt that and felt the pitch of the tree and like knew what it meant to actually like pull the outer from the inner bark and why you would sit there at the trunk with it. And I don't know. It was, it was fun. I, I just think, I mean, cause like so many aspects of people in society these days are so siloed, you know, like yeah. you become a specialist in the one thing you know, and you never kind of meet or mingle with anybody that might have any overlap. But as soon as you do, you're able to make all these correlations and it's just like, you see things that you never saw before. Yeah. And like you said, it's like, like the indigenous forest guards. You right. can't unsee once right. you see it. Exactly. That's just what I was going to say. Okay, it's like, what, well, no, I mean, it's like, it's. That's that's like the beauty of all this knowledge and learning. It's like as soon as you open yourself up to the idea that you're stupid and you don't know everything, like, and you're able to continue to learn, which I feel like people kind of hit a wall after high school and college and they think they're experts in banking, accounting, whatever it is, you know, they, they know all they know and they don't need to learn anymore. It's like as soon as you start learning or just like opening up to the fact that you don't know everything and you can continue to learn and grow and like see new things and like welcome in different bits of wisdom and knowledge that you maybe didn't have access to or the privilege to learn or the, the capabilities of learning. Like there's so much there. That's the other thing my grandmother taught me when I was young. What's that? She was like r reading, learning, watching documentaries, talking to people, like soliciting new information until like two weeks before she died at 99. Wow. She almost clocked a hundred, you know, 99 still pretty War good. II, Great depression. Wow. She lived through some heavy shit and never stopped learning. And like, I picked that up from her where I was like, yeah, why would you? Right. Like the world's too interesting to ever why stop. Why become complacent? Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, we've been talking for almost three hours now. How do you feel about that? you have anything else you want to add or say? I feel no. like it's a pretty decent place to wrap up. I feel good. Cool. Thanks so much for joining me on this little podcast adventure, man. Super stoked to have you on here. Got some amazing things to say. No, it's an honor. You've been doing amazing work. In fact, you've given me permission to kind of lay off on Instagram videos. As <laughs> soon as you hit the scene, I was like, okay, cool. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we should actually go and hit the woods together and do some videos. I would love to. Yeah, that'd be sick. Yeah. And that's kind of like, just to kind of tie it real quick, right back to everything we've been discussing. It's mm. like, that's what's been the real fun part of this whole process. Mm. Hey is that just going out and sharing with people like this is what an alder looks like you can tell it's an alder because of the way it is and like you wouldn't believe how many people are just like oh, oh my god that's an alder there's yeah, a that... bunch of alders behind my house it's like yeah that's such how a gift how cool is it that you that's know what they are gift, right yeah. and like and it's just like that that kind of childhood or that, that childlike willingness to just like learn something new and be engaged and to be stoked on something is something that like everybody kind of has I feel like we've just been kind of like dumbed down by the society or like beaten down by the society I guess to like not know things where it's like you can't have a perspective on forestry if you're not a certified yeah. RPF and it's yeah. like well that doesn't mean I don't know <laughs> okay. a thing or two about trees or like still value them for for purposes for or for value sets beyond timber and that's where like we need to kind of like I guess in my mind, change the way that we like manage these forests is beyond just values for timber, but to include social, cultural, ecological, all these different values that just traditionally haven't been ever valued or considered. Yeah. I mean, this is like kind of the beautiful part about your work and like your leadership in, in, in this sector is like you do such a good job, like welcoming people into 
having uh, an inquisitive mind and, and, and sort of like giving people permission to reconnect with nature in ways that they've been taught they're not supposed to. Um, you do it really well. You wear it really well. And it's like an inspiration, man. You do, you do great work. Oh, shucks. Thanks, bud. Yeah. It means a lot. Stop. <laughs> no, stop. <laughs> no, you stop. Okay, cool. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you coming on. Cool. And um, hopefully we can do this again sometime. We should go into the woods. Yeah. Cool. I think that's, that's the next thing to do. Well, thank you so much for tuning into that conversation with Mark Worthing and I. For more information on the Montagila Nation, which we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you can check out montagila.ca. That's M-A-A-M-T-A-G-I-L-A dot C-A. And for more information on Sierra Club BC and all their campaigns, including the ones that Mark has been working on, you can check them out at sierraclub.bc.ca. Once again, Nerdy About Nature is an independent passion project that relies on support from folks like you in order to make it all possible. So if you're enjoying these podcasts and these fun educational videos, feel free to check out nerdyaboutnature.com for ways to support this project, either through merch or by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash nerdyaboutnature. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode, and I hope to catch you in a couple more weeks here with some more super nerdy fun content. Take care. <laughs>